Aiden, it's great to have you here. I'm finally we're here. I I've really been looking forward to this conversation. It's funny the moment you press the record button, it's like ah, we're talking, but just relax. We're just having a chat. <laughs> no, um, it's, it's good to finally. How many years now has it been? I don't know. A lot. Two or three years. Three years, I'd imagine. Wasn't it before lockdown? Before, it would have been before COVID, yeah. So that's more than three years. Yeah, yeah. So I started following you because I loved your content on Instagram. Like, I love the fact that you're just giving information to people, especially runners, about how to run. And um, I have to admit, one of the biggest group of patients I have is, is are runners. And, you know, I, I used to find them a very difficult group of people because they'd come in really like with a crazy look in their eyes. I've got this injury, doc. I can't run. I'm going crazy. Fix me. And I'd be like, oh my God, bloody runner again. And and they would all say, this, you know, they were opening line, I'm a runner. I'd be like, okay, great. <laughs> and um, I wasn't a runner. So because I wasn't a runner, I didn't really have much sympathy for them. And I used to be like, yeah, whatever. Just rest and you'll get better and go away. Yeah, <laughs> And they'd be like, I need to run for my mental health. I'd be like, well, great. Sorry, your mental health. And, you know, I didn't have much sympathy. I have to admit, I didn't. But the thing is about three years ago, I became a runner. And I now totally understand. Like if I couldn't go for my regular runs every week, dude, I'd go crazy. I, I love running. And what's really interesting is I never thought I was a runner because Throughout my life, I've tried running. I've tried running in the park when I was working in New York, running around Central Park like everyone else does. Look at me. I'm so cool. And I used to run, you know, along the Thames when I lived in central London, past all the landmarks. Oh, look at me. Just like, but I hated it. I hated it. Um, So I didn't like running on the road. Didn't like running in the park. Didn't like running on a treadmill. Suddenly I come out in the countryside and start running trails over fields, into the woods, up and down hills. And I'm hooked. No, you're in. There's no, there's, there's no getting rid of you. I, <laughs> I'm, I'm hooked. And when a patient comes to see me now and says, I'm a runner and I can't run, I've got this injury. I'm like, oh my God, this is terrible. I need to help yeah. you. Like my whole like attitude is just changed. changes, doesn't it? So tell me what, why, why are you the running physio? Because on Instagram, you're the running physio, aren't you? Yeah, so the Irish physio, but essentially the running physio. I grew up playing football. I grew up playing football. I was playing like professional uh, for a number of years. Loads of, had three knee surgeries within three years. So got rid of my contract and then I was like, right, what do I do now? Got into physio and then I started rowing, um, rowed competitively for a number of years. And then I got bored of that. And then I, just pre-COVID, naturally the progression from rowing, because it's endurance based, you're training, you know, 11 sessions a week, six days a week, if you want to compete at, let's say, the Henley Royal Regatta. Stop that and it's like, right, let's try running. Started running, picked up a lot of injuries because I was sitting on my backside rowing on the machine, on the water. Yeah. And then I just fell in love with it. I fell in love with the feeling of what running gave me and from then I said, well, if I love this, why can't I just make this a job? I mean, I was, I was working as a physio treating all different shoulders, necks, persistent back pain, lower limb running. 
I thought, well, if I love running, what can I do that can, you know, get me out of bed in the morning and make me excited to go into work? And I said, right, I'm going to, I'm just going to go all in. And it was just delve into the research, start treating runners, build up a bit of a platform online. And now all I treat is runners. And and wow. I do lots of other stuff around running as well. So, so that's really surprised me. You've not actually been running for very long. I've been, I mean, yeah. I've always ran. I've always ran, but I would say properly for per, perhaps maybe last three, four years. Wow. Mm. So not, not much longer no, than me. No, no, no. I've always trained. I've always trained, but running has just grasped me over the last, you know, four, four years. I love the fact you're saying you, you want to do something that gets you out of bed and that you love. Honestly, I think most people, the majority don't actually fit that criteria. They don't do a job that they love. They're not passionate about and it's just there to pay the bills. And I feel sorry for them. You really want to do something that you love. So, yeah, I'm glad you found that. And um, otherwise, you wouldn't be having this conversation either. <laughs> I know. It's amazing what it does and the people you meet through it. Yeah. So tell me... Um, what did you learn when you started learning? You said you were getting lots of injuries and stuff like that. And I find that problem, I don't know about you, but I think one of the problems that I have is when patients come to see me and saying, oh, I'm a runner. I go, okay, so what kind of form of exercise do you do? And they go, oh, well, on a Monday I do a 5K run and on a Thursday I do a 5K run and on a weekend I do a 10K run and I go, what other exercise do you do? And they go, running. And I'm like, yeah, but anything else? And they go, no. I'm like, okay, so that's like me saying I've got a really healthy diet and I eat apples every day. Nothing but apples. Yeah. And on the weekend, I'll have two apples. I'm like, it doesn't sound that healthy anymore. And they, go, they look at me like, oh, yeah, that doesn't. Am I meant to do another type of exercise? <laughs> and yeah. I'm like, yes. <laughs> but I think that's got something to do with it. What do you think? I, I, I agree. I agree. I think what I realized when I started running was that Okay, it takes your body time to adapt. Just because I've been training and physically feeling fit and strong doesn't mean to say that my body can now withstand the forces that running has. And then I realized, okay, maybe if I do some strength training, and obviously I've read around it, so I knew doing something to complement the running and train for the demands of running was was going to help. And you know, from that, when I started reading research around strength training, the benefits, not only just the physical, mental well-being benefits that you have, but also it makes you a better runner. You know, it has the performance benefits. The science is there so, to back it up. Yeah, the people that don't know what strength training is, in a nutshell, what, what do you mean by that? So when we're looking at strength training specifically for running, we're looking for like neuromuscular adaptations. We're trying to stress the body for a short period with high demands. So when you're looking at most people will say, well, if I want to strength train for running, it needs to be, it needs to replicate running. It needs to be low resistance and it needs to be high reps, which is the complete opposite. So when you're strength training and your repetitions are above 15 reps, it becomes metabolic. That's what drives it. Whereas what we're looking for is neuromuscular. So you want to, high force, high power output. And then when you're running, it's like your engine is bigger. Therefore, for a given stride, you use less energy. So economically, you become much more efficient. But not only that, it improves tendon health, muscle health, bone health, which we both know when it comes to injuries like tendons and stress fractures, 
can be incredibly frustrating for runners. So strength training is getting weights, mm-hmm. kettlebells, yep. using your own body weight as well. But if you can eventually start adding additional load um, and uh, you don't even need gym work, do you? You can do this kind of st- strength training at home. Am I right? Absolutely. So essentially strength training, we want to apply progressive overload. So we want to be able to, over a period of weeks, months, we want to increase the amount of demand that's being placed on tissues. Therefore, the tissues adapt, providing recovery, etc., which I'm sure we'll go into is, is there. Not lots of people have access to gyms. People have families, they've got kids, they don't have time to get to a gym or maybe they can't afford to get to a gym. But you can do other things. So for example, you, you're sitting on a chair, you stand up using both legs. Stand up using one leg, add a rucksack, add some books, add some water progressive overload therefore my body is now having to perform greater force to stand up okay well why don't we get you hopping on one leg with a rucksack Mm. why don't we get you you know if you've got a stairs or let's say a wall in your back garden or in your local park Mm. why don't we get you jumping up onto that wall why don't get you hopping off that wall but the demands are greater than the demands of running Mm. so we train for the demands and we try and go beyond the demands. Essentially, that's it. We want to put your body under more stress than it is when you're running over that short period. Therefore, we know that you're more likely or less likely going to get injured. Your risk factor can reduce. So it's really funny. Um, I started doing strength training first before running. So you know, roll back the years. I'm 40 years old. I'm really fat. I'm diabetic. I'm hypertensive. I was a mess. I had a gym membership, which was very expensive. And I was maybe going once a week, once a month. And then it wasn't even that. I was too busy. Like life, just working, working, working. Um, And then I started getting a personal trainer in. And I thought, right, I'm going to exercise. And I'll be honest with you, I was paying him to force me to exercise. (laughs) <laughs> it was just like once a week. That sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? When you say it out loud. I know, right? And I think really you should be getting a personal trainer or a strength coach to teach you how to exercise and make sure you're doing it safely and give you additional exercises that you can start doing. But I wasn't. I was using him to literally motivate me. But eventually it got to once a week and then it got to twice a week that I started doing the exercises on my own. And it got to a point where I didn't need the personal trainer anymore. I was like, I was like, oh, I'm hooked. I kind of like doing the exercises here in my garden. I don't need to go to the gym for two hours and, you know, change in a changing room with fat naked men in front of me <laughs> flossing. <laughs> I, I can just do 30 minutes in the house, bang, get it out of the way. Um, so I, I had this background foundation of strength training. And then when I started running, because I wanted to spend time with my wife, because one of my love languages is quality time. Yeah. Um, and I'm out, and she's out in the woods, you know, for an hour, hour and a half. And I'm like, hey, I want to come. Um, I found it quite easy, that transition. Um, and I didn't get any injuries. And I did 3K. And after a couple of weeks, I started doing 5K. And then a couple of weeks later, they're starting 7K. And, and it just built up. Yeah. Um, but my wife kept getting injuries. Kept getting injured. Oh, by the way, I've got a question to ask from her. Remind me later. Um, and then I said to her, maybe you need to do strength training. And she was like, oh my God, that's so boring. I just want to run. And 
her mindset was, I want to be out in the woods, you know, mentally it's, you know, cleansing, it's great. What the hell? We're doing weights? But she's hooked now. Yeah. Because after having so many injuries, she's, she's seen the light, basically. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, when it comes to, like, someone who's a complete newbie, you know, has never run before, what would your advice be? How would you get them to start running? Well, initially is teaching people that look running. One thing I always say, if you don't want to get injured, don't run, you know, because <laughs> it's part of it. So expect that you're going to experience pain in your knee or calf or so it's normal. Yeah. You know, it's not an injury free sport, but also most injuries are not that serious. And recreation runners do have the, the rate of injuries per thousand hours is you know, twofold more than those who are ex more experienced. So it's part of it, but it's just start slowly and also yeah. learn how to run slow. Like running slow, you need to be very disciplined. Most people will go out and because they've got a half an hour to, to exercise, they'll push themselves, but it takes your body longer to recover. And also the peak forces in certain areas are a lot higher. So just run slow, walk if you have to. There's nothing wrong with it. You know, coming back from injury, a lot of times it's run-walk plans, depending on the injury. So give yourself a number of weeks slash months to just get used to building, well, depending on someone's goal. But if someone wants to run three, four times a week, well, let's just get out for 10, 15 minutes at a time, gradually build up. And of course, teaching them the, the benefits, right? Let's make sure we're getting strength training in the key muscle groups. Look after your recovery because... You know, we mentioned strength training. Yes, it is important, but you only benefit from the training you recover from. Make sure you're getting good quality sleep. You're you're eating a good balanced diet, uh, and you're reducing your risk of and and enjoy it. Just learn to learn to find different routes. You know, it, it is amazing. It's incredible. Once and the big thing for me is that most people will stop because they're injured, mm. and then they miss out on the health benefits. Hundred percent. I mean, I, I, I agree with all of that. Sleep is so important. That's when people recover. I don't know. I find a lot of these people who are quite stressed and trying to look for an outlet and run through the stress. They don't sleep very well. They're not addressing the stress cause, the problems at work, the problems in their family life. And I'm trying to educate them that stress produces cortisol. Cortisol weakens and denatures tissue. You know, if you inject cortisol into a tendon, it snaps. So... yeah. You need to address the underlying stress and optimize sleep and diet, like you said, and train. I think going slow is such good advice. I I don't look at times. I don't care, Aiden, mm. about how fast I am. The longer I'm out, the better. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And and it, it takes time to get used. And also we learn the hard way. I mean, you know, you said that you had a good, quite a good transition, but have you picked up any injuries since you started? So it's funny when we run, my wife and I talk about whether we've got any niggles. Mm. And there was a time when, you know, I, I was getting a little bit of um, hamstring tendinopathy. It was very mild. And it was, it was, it was every run. If I, my intensity was a bit too high. I was, my pace was too high. And I would then say to my wife, hey, I need to slow down a little bit. Yeah. And then we would slow down and she'd be like, what are you like? Is it okay? I'd be like, much better. I can barely feel it. 
and and we talk to each other. And if there's niggles, that's what we do. I mean, I'll be honest with you. It's been months since I've felt anything. Now, if I run, all I observe is some days, God knows why, I feel very sluggish and slow, like yeah. my feet are heavy, but I don't have any pains. And there'll be other days when I feel as light and just f- like floating and I'm just, it feels amazing. Yeah. And it's weird. I don't really know why that is, but I don't, I don't run fast. I don't mind. I don't have a, a high intensity, you know, and I think um, I've looked into injuries. I think the intensity, the speed, that's what really picks up your injuries. And I don't know about your advice, but I, I find that if I get a niggle, I slow down. Yeah. And if the niggle and by slowing down goes away, I carry on. Yeah. But if the pain persists, I will stop and start walking. Mm. What I won't do, I know that people, a lot of people say you should run through the pain. I don't do that. I don't know. I don't know about your opinion, but I personally think that's dangerous. Pain is your body's way of saying something's not right. I'm, I'm bringing it to your attention. Do something about it. And if you ignore it, the risk is, okay, You the pain might subside, but you develop a chronic problem or you develop failure in some way. Yeah. So touch wood, no, I've not really had any injuries, but maybe that's me being a foot and ankle surgeon, orthopedic surgeon, being very in tune with my body. I don't, I don't know. But it's interest, interesting that you said when you did pick something up, you realized that it was the intensity was aggravating it. And, you know, when you run faster, so you could have two people, one person's running 100 kilometers a week and the other person's running 50 kilometers a week. The person that's running 50 could be doing, let's say, 50% of that at a higher intensity. The one that's doing 100 kilometers could be doing it relatively easy, conversation pace. The one that's doing 50 kilometers is probably at a greater risk because the intensity is higher. Yeah. So like your hamstrings, when you're running slowly, they're probably producing... 1.5 1.5 to 2 times your body weight in force. When you're at sprinting speeds, mm. it's up to 9 times your body weight in force. So, you know, you sprint for a bus. It's, it's no it's no it's no surprise you get people coming in it's like yeah, I was late for I was late for work so I had to catch the train so I just kind of sprinted a little bit and then they get a flare up. But these little things do make the big difference. So yeah. You learn, you learn unfortunately sometimes the hard way. Yeah, 100%. And I think it's all about the intensity. Yeah. But then how do you do it? Because there's so many people who love the timings and they love, oh, you know, one of the commonest things I hear from people when they've come to me with an injury is, oh, Mr. Malik, Dr. Malik, you know, last week I just got my personal best. I can't believe, you know, I've never been, I've never had such a good run before. I've never been so fast. I can't believe I've had this injury. And and it's like, can't you see the connection, that yeah. is the reason that you pushed your body so far and that failed. And I don't think they get, they get in their head, it's, I was so good. My PB was so amazing. I was the peak of my fitness. Why one week later have, has this happened to me? And I think what they need to understand is, no, they, they put their foot down on the pedal, revved up the engine. Yeah, got quite fast, but then the engine just went, yeah. Blue. <laughs> yeah. And that is when you're looking at performance, you know, let's say someone wants to run park run, they want to run a 5K PB. You can only be at that top level for a certain point of time. You, your body has to come back down. It's like you're training for an event. People will call them, this is my A race. This is the one I want to peak for. You can't be at that level that you're at that 
event yeah. for so long. You need to come back down and then come back up again. But that is often the, the problem is when people start seeing their body change physically, they're getting faster. It's like, okay, they keep on a pushing, which which is great. But then eventually the body will the body will tell them, hang on a second, something needs to change here. So I'm gonna ask you something. You know, you're you're seeing a lot of people, runners coming to you with injuries. So what are the top like five, top ten running injuries that you're seeing? And how would you recommend that people A avoid them? And B, what's the best way to treat them? <laughs> That's a big, Ooh, big question. Is, uh, how long have we got? <laughs> that, okay, so... Take your time. Number one, I would say, is just general knee pain. So patella femoral pain. Right. So pain around the front of the knee is is the number one most common running-related injury. Well, obviously, I don't see that because I'm a fit yeah. lanker, so <laughs> yeah. I would never have guessed that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um. Number two, you're probably... So, sorry, yeah. let's go back. So, what's causing that? Is that patella tendon pain, quadriceps pain? So, t- in terms of the nociception, we're not really clear where it's coming from. So, it's essentially pain in and around the kneecap. So, behind the kneecap and in that kind of um, trochlear groove with, oh, the, right. with the femur. So, where the femur sits onto the... or So, where the patella fits onto the, sits onto the femur. Yeah, yeah. So, when you're running, particularly as you're striking the ground going into mid-stance... The, the load on that area, I could, I think it's around three to four times your body weight in peak yep. force. Yeah. So when someone is walking, you're still loading the area, but then all of a sudden when they start running, this area is like, hang on a second, this is new to me. And therefore you start, your, your body starts, your pain, your, your brain starts producing pain. And it's actually not in terms of like structurally, if you're going to scan someone with patellofemoral pain, it's not really going to show much. So it's not their tendon. It's not it's the patella tendon. tendon. It's not no. quite, just general specific pain behind the kneecap, around yeah. the kneecap. Ah, yeah. interesting. That's can... number one. And in terms of treatment for that, so we can actually see, it, it can be really difficult if, if someone comes to you late. So you see a lot of people with patella femoral pain where they have signs of depression because they fear that something is wrong with their knee. So when they bend down to pick things up, when they go up and down stairs, when they're sitting in the office, their knee is hurting. They think, God, I've I've damaged my knee. Mm. Whereas when you have something that comes in after a long period of time, you mm. have to really, education is essential. You have to educate them about the structures, why you're experiencing pain. Yeah. Bending is not harmful because they develop these kind of fear and avoidant patterns. Yeah. So, and then it has that knock-on effect. They don't do things they enjoy. They might increase weight and then they they don't socialize with certain people they, they have been when they've been running. So it really has a domino effect. On the flip side, if you catch it early, great outcomes. Mm. So it can be, it really does depend on the individual. And often, you know, you might find deficits in quadriceps strength, hip abduction. So Strengthen the glutes, strengthen your calf. So it's it's identifying these areas. I mean, do you think some of it is patella maltracking, the kneecap going through the groove, not properly? It's a good point. And I, I don't think the research correlates very well with that. And there's just a number of guys who would produce a lot of research in this. And you've got them. Um, so like, what do you think is causing it? Why do they get it? I, th- I think it's just exposure to load too quickly. Mm. It's just too much too soon. Yeah. It takes time to adapt. It's like when someone is 
wearing high heels going into the office and then all of a sudden they change to flat shoes and, and now they're getting some plantar heel pain or Achilles issues, I think it's because they've changed in forces going through the area. 100%. You know, from an injury point of view, this is what I see. The top things are intensity. They've ramped it up too much. Um, frequency. They're doing it too often. Yeah. And the the gradient in which they increase the the amount so they're doing too much too quickly yeah um i think all of these things are the reasons why i see injuries it's basically just you're getting this overload phenomenon yeah. they're not giving their body time to adapt the muscles to get stronger the tendons to get stronger so they overwhelm that because basically as living beings there's a repair and damage kind of system going on you've got damage from daily life yeah Cells being degraded, broken down, whatever, and then you're we're not we're not like a this inanimate desk here. We're living tissue, so the body goes ah that's damaged. I'm going to repair this, but the repair crew, for one, isn't as frequent and as abundant as when you're a child. Yeah, and every decade you get older, the repair crew gets a little bit less. Yeah, and then by the time you get my age, they're part timers. <laughs> <laughs> And then if you're doing too much damage, then you overwhelm that repair mechanism. Then you get the muscle tears, the tendon and tendinopathy, the stress fractures and everything. So yeah, go slow. I agree. I agree. And you made it, you made such a good point, changing more than one variable at a time. So often people will start, they'll increase exactly as you said, frequency, intensity, duration. And that's one thing that I would often try and highlight to the runner is just change one at a time. If you want to run, try, let's just try and get you running three times a week. And then let's build a little bit of intensity, then a bit of volume. Most people will buy a running plan and they're running once a week and the running plan asks them to run three or four times a week. You're doing speed sessions. Mm. It's just too much too soon, as you said. So that's knee, number one. What's the number two? That I see or what the research tells us. What do you see? What I see? Yeah, I don't oh, care okay. about research. Yeah. Okay, so, the experts. Yeah, You're the, the experts. expert. I'm the expert. So, because I see a lot of competitive runners, it would be more Achilles tendinopathy, and I have a special interest in bone stress injuries, which is something I want to question you on, being the full oh. ankle expert. <laughs> so Achilles tendinopathy. Achilles tendinopathy, yeah. yeah. So how does that present? So in terms of peak forces, the Achilles is it's essentially formed from your calf, your medial lateral head of your calf, and then your soleus. So those combined take 11 times of your body weight in force. So yeah. that alone is just one of the main reasons why you'll end up getting Achilles issues is that you're running and you're exposing it to really high forces. And often when you look at how strong someone is in that area, so I'll get them doing calf capacity test or how much weight can they lift in terms of their percentage of body weight and often it's nowhere near what we would like it to be mm. so i think it's perhaps maybe not conditioned enough in that area mm. and then also just to the, the amount of high forces footwear as well can be can be can definitely play a part oh we'll talk about that in a sec so basically i i have to remind myself that most people don't know anatomy is yes. and physiology yep. and yep. you know i've just been doing it for so many years but you know when i say to people do you know what a tendon is they, they don't know about tendon is. i'm like what and i'm like of course they don't why would they know mm. but basically a muscle contracts is the engine the motor mm -hmm. and it affects and one of the things it does is movement but it's actually a lot more than that muscle is like an almost like an endocrine structure 
Um, it helps stability, um, form, the reason why we can sit up in this chair, not just collapse in a heap of bones. Um, but yeah, movement is one of them. Yep. Um, but muscles create that movement via a tendon. So the muscle becomes a tendon and the tendon attaches to a bone. Yep. And just on the back of your hand, you can see these little tendons. And all they're doing, these tiny little tendons, lifting my finger. But the Achilles tendon is the biggest tendon in the body. Mm. And the reason why it's the biggest tendon in the body is just what you've just said. It, the force is going through it. If you think about it, it, when you contract your calf muscle and you go up on your tiptoes, you're lifting your whole body weight, body weight mm. which is a massive force. And when you run, you're right. It's 11 times your body weight. Boom. Yeah. So, and tendons have very poor blood supply. That's why they're white. Because they've got poor blood supply, they don't heal very well, take longer to heal. And that's why they're prone to injuries. Yeah. So I'm not surprised. And yeah, Achilles tendons, big problem as you get into your late 30s and yes. 40s. Yep. And again, I think a lot of it is People were fit and active when they're younger, playing football, then they get on the career path, start working, stop exercising, start wanting to get, when they get a little bit more money, a bit more financially secure, right, I'm going to get fit, I'm going to get healthy, I'm going to take up where I left it, which was 20 years ago, and boom. Absolutely. <laughs> it just yeah. falls apart. And it is the one muscle group that we would see the most muscle mass lost in is the calf area. Yeah. So when you lose muscle in the calf, you lose tendon capacity. Yeah. So, and it is, uh, I love what you mentioned about the blood supply and it taking longer to recover, etc. The other thing as well is, you know, with it being the biggest tendon, it's also the biggest energy storage unit we have. So it acts like a spring. Stores mm. energy, releases energy. Yeah. Exactly what you said. We, as we get older, we don't, we're not running around playing football, playing three or four different sports. Yeah. Um, we're sitting down, we might have families and we're not exercising as much and that just deconditions totally totally de and you know it's so funny how many runners i see who say they're strong runners and then i say right can you do a single leg heel race five times and they're all over the place mm. and it's just a simple test yeah and i think what they think of it being a strong runner isn't a strong runner just because you can run three times a week yeah and be relatively fast isn't what's strong yeah um you know you you noticed when we came in i was wearing ultra <laughs> yeah <laughs> So my wife is the one that recommended these and I'll be honest with you, first time I wore them and we went for a run, I got Achilles tendon pain. I'm not surprised. And I was like, oh my God, what the hell? I've never had Achilles tendon problems before, but it's it's a zero drop. Mm -hmm. So just in case the listeners don't know, zero drop means normally shoes of whatever type, footwear, the heel is slightly raised compared to the toes by about five millimeters, but they vary. And I was running in hawkers and they were like five millimeter heel to toe drop. And suddenly I'm in a flat training shoe, totally flat, zero drop. And it doesn't sound like very much, five millimeters. Oh my God. Yeah. My Achilles tendons would beg to differ. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I've actually got in my ultras that I'm wearing right now, a five millimeter heel wedge. Mm. And suddenly, voila, my Achilles tendons are fine. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so what do you think about... You know, barefoot running and zero drops and, you know, is there a right way or a wrong way? I've got my own opinions, but I'd love to hear what you think. I mean, I'm a massive shoe geek. I love shoes. I've If you go, if you look at in my flat in, in London, 
you know, my, my partner, she's not best pleased with me. I've got a lot of different shoes. <laughs> um, so yeah, with the, with the, I mean, with the ultras or any shoe that has a lower platform, you're taking load away from one area, but you're putting it somewhere else. So the knee and hip loads are reduced. Therefore, calf and foot loads are increased. Mm. Um, but my opinion on it is that I think that over time, with all of these increased higher stack shoes, more cushioning in your shoe, is it's going to have a long-term effect. I don't think it's surprising that we're seeing, although we're having there's more people in the population that are running, um, it's not surprising that we're seeing more kind of lower limb injuries as a result because I think when you're so comfortable walking around in these fancy comfy shoes, it deconditions mm. without question. Yeah. And I think a key point as well on that is that the biggest loads placed on bones are through muscle contractions. So mm. if you're in shoes that have higher heel drop or, you know, a big chunky heel, you're essentially reducing the amount of load placed on the bone. Over time, that could have a significant impact on your bone density, mm. may have. Mm. So, and then it's also not surprising we're seeing more stress fractures. So I think shoes have, I, I would argue, a bigger part than what perhaps some people think. No, on the other side, I love wearing high stack shoes because they're fun. <laughs> they're fun to run in. Do you wear high heels on the weekend? Mm. I can't, I can't say that on camera. No, I don't. <laughs> Dude, not for me. I, I won't judge you. I won't. Not for I, me. Seriously, I, I, I don't. Everyone to their own. Yeah. You would look good in heels, I think. I appreciate that. <laughs> so basically, um, yeah, I know there's like a lot of vogue about, you know, barefoot running and, you know, flexible shoes and natural. And I, there's so many different styles. What does it actually even mean, a barefoot shoe? I mean, it... For example, my ultras have got a very yeah. wide toe box, very anatomical looking. Yeah. Some people would say they're fugly. Yeah. I, I don't. I don't have a problem with them. I yeah. think they look great. More importantly, they feel amazing. My toes have got room to spread out, but I don't like the zero drops. I've put in the five millimeter yeah. heel wedge. They also do flexible running shoes and stiffer ones. Because I run trail, I'll be honest with you, I find it more comfortable in the stiffer. Yeah. But equally... Around the house and in the garden, I walk around barefoot. Yep. I exercise barefoot. I, I, I feel my intrinsic foot muscles yep. are working and engaging so much better. My balance is better when I'm barefoot. So th for me, there's not a right or wrong answer. And if you've got arthritis, for example, you definitely don't want to be wearing flexible shoes because that's going to, or if you've got brittle bones, you're going to get stress fractures. You're going to aggravate your arthritis. But if you've got hypermobility, you've got really supple joints and you've been walking flexibly, then it's fine. Yeah. I mean, that's my take on it. I, I, I like that, that there is no right and wrong answer. But that's something that I, I would say more recently, over the past, say, six months, I've been advising more in clinic is that people get comfortable walking in lower drop shoes or flatter shoes or bare feet. So if I say to someone, if someone has like an Achilles or foot symptoms and the aggravating factors that they walk when they're walking barefoot or in around the house, I'm like, okay, well, that's something I want to get you doing. I want, you should feel comfortable doing that mm. because if you're always protecting your foot and your lower leg by wearing these comfy shoes, well then when you're in a position where you're not in those shoes, exactly. you're going to pick up an injury, more likely to pick up an injury. 
Yeah. And that, I think that comes right from the beginning. Like when kids, you know, we're putting them all into these big heel pump type shoes and, you know, what they need to do is be barefoot. They need yeah. to be walking around and using those foot muscles and stretching out their calf muscle. And, you know, my little kid, when he was, you know, just too, I love the fact he could do a deep squat. He was flexible yeah. and I still try and get them to keep supple. Mm. And I feel like as we get older, we kind of lose that and we get a bit stiff and, lazy we just sit at a desk all day and wear these shoes with massive you know heels and actually what we need to do is kind of like go back to how our body physiology is meant to be um but equally i think it's very difficult if you spend 40 years of your life wearing high heels then to suddenly go to flat shoe you're gonna have problems yeah again it comes back to that gentle gradual transition and for some people you'll never be able to get it completely like me i can't i can't run on a zero drop yeah. I mean, maybe I'm being lazy and I should work on it slowly, but I don't want to do a 2K run anymore. I still like my little <laughs> loop. <laughs> so it's easier to just put the heel wedge in. And I think you what you mentioned earlier as well about someone having midfoot arthritis or OA in the foot is shoes can be used as tools. <clears throat> you can use them to offload certain areas. It's like someone has a headache. Yeah. You, know, you might take some paracetamol or whatever. You can use a shoe to offload an area to keep someone doing what they want to do. So I think they're very effective if they're used in the in the right way. Yeah. So we've done knee pain. We've done Achilles tendons. Yeah. Um, oh, one more thing about Achilles tendon. How many of your folks come to you saying, can you do a quick shot or injection or can you do some PRP or some voodoo medicine? This is something I wanted to ask you on, actually. Yeah, so go for it. I would get people who are looking to compete in an event where they want to, they want, you know, a quick fix. I want to be able to run, etc. And I would never personally, well, I wouldn't say always I'll go conservative. Let's try and manage it with exercise, etc. Um, but what is the, what, what is the best practice when it comes to that? And the question I would have is, does it change if, so with the Achilles tendon, you can get a tendinopathy, just for the, the listeners, or the other one is a, a, like tenosynovitis, so inflammation of the tendon sheath that surrounds the tendon. Mm. So my understanding is that injections can be beneficial for the sheath injuries, or is that not the case? I, I don't know is the answer, but I'm, <laughs> that's what I'm asking you. <laughs> you're, you're right. So the acute pain, acute problems can be due to um, the Achilles tendon um, lining mm. being inflamed. So that's tenosynovitis. So uh, acute Achilles tendonitis, the actual structure of the tendon is healthy, but it, it's inflamed. The lining is inflamed. I don't think injections actually are the best thing. Steroid injections are very powerful, and I think it's negligent actually to inject yeah steroids around tendons because of the risk of rupture um i've gone totally away from it it, it weakens and denatures the tissue so while you might get some short-term relief and think wow that's worked it's at a big cost yeah it's not worth it i think if you've got an acute tendonitis the simple thing is rest from the aggravating um insult the running or whatever and i don't mean like you know put it in a boot yeah or a plaster Again, that weakens and denatures and causes atrophy. And you don't want that. You, you just want to just slow down, but you want to preserve movement. You want to preserve that function. So you don't want to stop. Um, 
Now, an Achilles tendinopathy, that's wear and tear. That's lack of inflammation. So it's the opposite of that acute thing. Yeah. It's, it's degeneration. And you want to get some healing back. But again, you want to remove the, the high level of damage mm-hmm. and promote healing. Yes. How do you do the healing? Oh, that's hard. Again, injections aren't the answer. Steroid injections ultimately are sweeping the rubbish under the carpet. It might look yeah. good initially, but after a while, you're going to have a stink. Yeah. So you don't want to do that. Yeah. My wife would be upset if that's the way I tidied up the house. I had I had someone, she was an international triathlete, reach out to me. Yeah. And I said, right, let's just jump on a call. She was given within, I think, eight months, four cortisone injections into her Achilles. Oh. Massively red, massively inflamed. And obviously, this person, it's just their career, right? It's yeah. It's their livelihood, so yeah. And So how did they do? Well, I, ga- I I was very honest with my opinion. I obviously you have to be quite, you know, mindful of how you're you know, you're you're giving that message across. But I said, look, the injections are not going to get you where you want to be. Essentially with a tendinopathy, what we see is progressively overloading the tendon mm. and placing the tendon under higher strain mm. is what but gradually, like you said, exactly. take remove the the energy stores such as hopping, but progressively load the tendon slowly. Um, that's where we will see better adaptations with the tendinopathy. So, yeah, I don't know. The answer is I don't know how she got on. She went off to see a specialist, and I think it was looking for, you know, adjuncts and in, in other ways to try and fix it. Yeah, so these other there's the other injections where they, they get blood and they spin it down. It's called PRP. Um, and the this so-called benefit is that you're getting the healing cells and chemicals and you you can regenerate the tendon i haven't seen any substantial significant studies to show that it works yeah i think it's a placebo at best it's a great money earner (laughs) for doctors yeah but patients and runners are equally guilty because they want that quick fix yeah and you know if you can give it in a vial and a needle and they don't need to do anything they don't need to make any sacrifices. They don't need to make any changes. And it's an instant quick fix. They will sign up and pay for it. And the doctor's rubbing their hands, going, great. I'm delivering what the patient wants. And I make a nice earner. Uh, four, 400, 400 quid? Easily. Yeah. Dude, I mean, some places in London, Harley Street, they're charging a lot. And then they, there's all this stem cell business and, you know, regenerative medicine. I think you're going into a rabbit hole, isn't it? Once you once you <laughs> open up once you open up that can of worms, it's just you know, you're always trying to find a way to to fix it rather than, you know, let the body do its thing and, and give it the right things to do. I have a question for you. On the tenosynovitis what are your thoughts on using topical anti-inflammatory? So the yeah the the kind of night treatment is the Valterol, Herodoid cream, and that night wrap, just using Glad wrap around That's it. a really good question. I mean, I think it's really simple. You know, if you put on an anti-inflammatory gel or topical agent and your pain goes away, well, it's responding. You've got inflammation. Yeah. Put it on. But the thing is, I've got I've, I've been on my own journey, you know. I used to take ibuprofen when I had a bad back yeah. and anti-inflammatories. I I don't take them very often now. 
Because I think inflammation is how your body heals. Yeah. Anti-inflammatory medication, stopping the inflammation, stopping the healing. Remember I said tendinopathies is a lack of healing, a lack of inflammation. You get degeneration. So do I really want to be pill popping not constantly? Not really. Do I take anti-inflammatory? Like once every few years I'll take if something's happened. But it's literally a short management course. I'm taking it to help go over the, the, the hump. And then I will try and just tolerate the degree of discomfort and listen to my body and change my behavior so that the discomfort will go down naturally on its own and it will heal. So I picked up a wrist injury with jujitsu. It's my third one in a year. Last time was when my wife collapsed on top of me. Don't go there. (laughs) Um, And I didn't take any anti-inflammatories. And I haven't. And instead, I've stopped jujitsu much to my displeasure because I really got hooked. Haven't been for six weeks. Yeah, My wife has still been going, so she's getting better than me, which is really frustrating. <laughs> the competitive nature. And I know. Um, but I can feel my wrist slowly getting better. Now, I'm actually still going to see a hand surgeon for a scan because I want to know what I've done and I want to know if I can go back, when I can go back, and if I need to wear a brace, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I've just let it heal naturally with time. I've mm-hmm. kept up exercise. I run. I've still been doing weights. I've reduced certain positions in, in the weights because I know if I do some something, it will hurt. Yeah. So, for example, doing um, push-ups, dorsiflexing my wrist is a bit painful. So I, I do it on my fists and my knuckles. Yeah. Stuff like that. Um, but I, I've gone away even from anti-inflammatories. But I think, look, if you're in a lot of pain, you're limping, you're in agony, take it. Take it for a day or two, three days, but no more than that. I, I think the I agree, I hundred percent agree on the point about inflammation is there for a reason. It's like someone has a sprained ankle or you know, they sprain medial ligament in the knee. Well, you know, that's there for a reason. It's there to protect you, it's there to heal. Um but I do think that I well personally I've seen good results using that that nice treatment, if you like, with the Voltol and the Herodoid but like you said it's like right let's try it for a few days and then exactly let your body do its thing yeah what i mean is i don't th- don't think you should be just taking it for weeks and weeks yeah. and you know just you know that's how you manage it i don't it's an acute thing there is and as well with, with i'm sure we'll come on to this in the next injury with bones isn't there they're saying like with anti-inflammatories like no more than nine days because obviously you've stress injury and the healing is affected yeah so i mean exactly anti-inflammatories can prevent bone from healing um i wouldn't even take it for nine days i mean there's a i've seen i've seen horrendous gastric bleeds people almost die where they've taken a course of anti-inflammatory some i mean i I remember this young lad he'd only been taking it for three days this is like a few years back when i was a junior doctor He'd, he'd come into hospital vomiting up blood and he'd had a massive gastric ulcer and he was in shock volume, you know, volume shock where, you know, you've lost so much blood. And it was because he'd been taking some brufen for a back pain for three days. And it's like, so, so what I'm trying to say is, I mean, that's very unusual. Yeah. But it just goes to show you nothing is benign. Nothing is risk free. Nothing is 100% safe and effective. Mm-hmm. You know, you just caution and be careful and, you know, 
Yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't even recommend taking ibuprofen. High dose, maximum dose for nine days, especially when it comes to bones. Definitely not. Yeah. The other thing with painkillers and anti-inflammatories is you don't want to mask yep. the pain. So what do I mean by that? Pain is your guide. It's telling you whether you're resting enough, whether you're how much you're able to walk or do, how much activity you can do. Like you know, like my wrist. Yeah. And if you're taking pills and drugs and switching off that feedback mechanism well you might be doing harm you might be delaying your recovery you might be adding insult to injury so this is what i mean by i think a lot of people just need to it's funny earlier on today you were talking about being in a discomfort level of discomfort you know it's it's good to be in discomfort and 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 live within that zone and be aware of your body I think it's really important to exercise, to push yourself to levels of discomfort. Yep. That's how you build resilience at the end of the day, yep. mentally and physically. I agree. I think that's what running teaches you as well. Yes. Is that it teach, it, you learn what the body responds to. And often you're going to experience some levels of pain. And then throughout that journey, you start to learn what works well, what doesn't. And you become so in tune. Like, no, with my running, I've recently run London Marathon having had oh surgery. wow we need to talk about that <laughs> having had having had two knee surgeries over the past you know what, 18 months and the learning i went on my own body throughout that and, mm. and experiencing pain knowing that obviously with you know my job and the knowledge and in certain injuries i know what injuries are safe to experience low levels of discomfort in those that aren't but it's how i learned how my body was responding to I had a poor night's sleep if I felt stressed. Okay, I'm not going to push it on this day. So, mm. so yeah, I know that definitely. And I guess as well to mention on the on the anti-inflammatory side of stuff, it's never something that me as a physio will advise because it's it's outside my scope. So I'll message someone like yourself. <laughs> <laughs> so okay, we've done knees, Achilles, and tendons. What's the next one? Bone stress injuries. Mm. Very complex. And yeah, so mainly in the lower limb, I would see tibia most commonly. So the shin bone. Um, also, seen a couple of naviculars, one with you, and second, fifth metatarsal, again, mm. in other areas. And I'd also seen quite. It fifth, makes fifth metatarsal. Yeah, base of fifth metatarsal. Interesting. Base of fifth. Um, and also femoral neck and sacral stress fractures sacral mm. wow yeah so you know about the female triad don't you yeah what's that all about so we know well female triad relative energy deficiency in sport so it's essentially when you're training we're expending energy and sometimes excessive amount if you're training 12 hours plus and then we're not taking in enough energy so it's you know, when someone is in a, a, a deficit, essentially, for a prolonged period, mm. um, then that has significant impact on mental health, cognitive function, physical health. So, you know, for females, one of the key things, so I would see a lot of, you know, competitive female athletes. And one of the questions I'll always ask is, what's your menstrual cycle like? So, are you experiencing a period? And if someone has been, and then all of a sudden they've not been getting their period, well, mm. something it can be a sign. But I'm always looking for risk factors. So, how are they training? Some when someone's training over twelve hours, like that's a risk factor. If mm. someone has a history of a bone stress injury, that is a significant risk factor for another bone stress injury. 
So and it's it's something I think that's not spoken about enough. And um, eating disorder as well. Yeah. So disordered eating is you know if you look at the vary, but the prevalence in females six to forty five percent in endurance sports. Wow. Males zero to twenty percent. Wow. And the only thing with males is that they think it's more. It's it's likely that it's underreported. So mm. the numbers are probably higher. Yeah. Yeah. So the question I then have is, with endurance sports, I think a lot of it can be people kind of use it to mask potential things that they're going through. So, for example, if someone does have an eating a disorder, disordered eating, are they using the level of training to say, oh, well, I need to be light for my sport? You know, it's, it's, it's a tough subject to talk about. Yeah. Yeah. What you mean eating? W- yeah. If someone is training for, you know, if they're doing an Ironman or a marathon and, and y- they've come in with multiple injuries, I'm thinking, okay, this person has got signs of energy deficiency or the female athlete triad. And then, you know, it's, it's, you kind of have to build that rapport before you start asking the, the questions. Okay, yeah. What, is there something else going on? But, you know, a lot of the athletes come in and th- they'll be very open. They're like, Aiden, my relationship with food has previously, oh, you know, I've had anorexia, bulimia. No, I'm in a much better position. Some people are perhaps maybe at the start of that journey and not even aware that they have it. Um, but it's my my job in my position is to is to see these signs and then try and open up a discussion and see if I can refer to the appropriate person. That being a registered dietitian would be would be one of the main first port of calls for me. But it is I see it I see it weekly in clinic. Wow! And in terms of like bone, yeah, you're right. Mediotibial stress syndrome, mm. shin splints, that's quite high. But that's to me, not an underlying bone issue. It's almost like a traction, periostitis. Mm. And it's, again, muscle imbalance, lack of strength. And then when it comes to the foot, um, yes, high number of stress fractures, which is simply failure overload. Too much damage, not enough repair. So that the, the scales have been tipped towards the damage. Yeah. Um, second metatarsal, Fifth metatarsal, so that's interesting. And then you can also get hip stress fractures. Yep. Paula Radcliffe, I think it was, marathon runner, didn't she have a stress fracture? I'm not quite sure. I mean, it wouldn't be surprise me being at that level, you know. And then in a slight difference. Fifth metatarsal is a, a, a funny one. Sorry for interrupting. Yeah. That's on the outside part of your foot. Mm. Um, I had a fifth metatarsal injury, stress, lesion. This was way back when I was 27, 20 years ago. I was working for a foot and ankle surgeon. Really? <laughs> and I was trying to get fit, trying yeah. to shift the weight. I was, you know, I've had a, I've had a problem with weight all my life yeah. up until four or five years ago. Very guilty relationship with food. And I think it's all linked. I had poor self-esteem. I'd feel down. would eat, overeat, not feel good about myself, feel guilty. And I would yo-yo, get my weight under control, exercise like a crazy person, then bounce back up again. One of the, so I've tried running and different things. So I was running and I went to a running shop in London and they did a gait analysis and said, you overpronate. Yeah. And <laughs> when I was 27, didn't have a clue what they were talking about. I was like, okay. And they were like, we'll give you these training shoes. These are the right training shoes you need to get. Stop you from pronating. And what they did was force my foot out mm-hmm. into supination. And load the outside part of my foot. 
because they're trying to stop me rolling in. And these were shoes that I've never worn before and never had something like this before. Suddenly I start running and I had the most intense pain around the outside of my fifth metatarsal. And I went to see my consultant who I'm working for. I'm limping. He's like, what's wrong with you? I was like, <laughs> I've tried running. I've been wearing these shoes. And it's and he pressed on the bone and I jumped and I was in agony. And he's like, you idiot. You, these training shoes are not right for you. You've got quite a nice arch. You don't have flat feet. These are over correcting you and pushing you into supination. And now you've stressed the bone. And I was like, oh, for and I felt so angry yeah. that I'd been conned by this running shop. Yep. But guess what? 20 years on, Aiden, I'm s I see this all the freaking time. Yeah. You overpony. I wonder how That's many crazy. of these fifth metatarsals, you know, that you're seeing mm. are people who've been told they're overpony on a running gate scan or whatever and told buy these expensive training shoes. It, it is definitely one of the most frustrating things I come up against is that people told that they have, you know, flat certain foot. Okay, yes, you can categorize into certain foot types, but in terms of like putting someone into a motion control shoe is actually going to, we see a higher incidence of injuries mm. versus someone in a, a neutral or a shoe that just doesn't try to correct your foot posture. Exactly as you said, you're taking load. But it's not even correcting the posture. No, no. <laughs> yeah, so. In there's nothing to yeah. correct <laughs> like pronation you need it to attenuate the force so when you're striking the ground the foot needs to pronate so for those that don't, don't know what that is is that when your foot naturally in a standing position your first ray or first metatarsal in the midfoot will be slightly higher when you hit the ground that needs to attenuate the force by flattening and then the muscles contract yeah. and then it also needs to supinate as you push off exactly when you're putting someone then when you're telling someone, well, you shouldn't be doing that, well, it's the complete opposite. You need, and of course, I think the timing of pronation is important. So if someone is unable to supinate because they don't have certain strength or whatever, which we don't see very often, then perhaps, yes, you could, you know, footwear can help. But yeah, it is very frustrating when you have so-called experts telling runners that they need, and it's that kind of fear-induced information as well, isn't it? You need yeah. to, you have, then it's 100%. labeling someone. It's like, oh my God, I've got a flat foot or I pronate. It's yeah, not not very helpful. Oh, it's not helpful. To, and the problem is <laughs> you've labeled them, you've instilled fear. And the thing is the, the person then, they buy into it. They go, this explains everything. I overpronate. And then when, the problem that I find is when I <laughs> say to them, you've got a really nice arch and I've seen you walk and you don't overpronate. They look at me like, what the hell is wrong with you? <laughs> <laughs> Why are you taking this away from me? Yeah. You know, how dare you? You're meant to be the specialist. Yeah. What do you mean? And they get angry. Some of them get angry. Like, what do you mean I don't overpronate? That person said I overpronate. And I'm like, yeah, well, maybe that person didn't know what they're talking about. I, and, and I think <laughs> physios are perhaps, we, we might be a little bit different than consultants with how we deliver a message because yeah. consultants are, you've got X amount of time with patients and you'll tell them and I love that I love that you just tell them as it is whereas when I've got a bit longer with someone you know you're exactly right it can trigger people and I and like I don't I don't blame them because you know they feel like this is me I have a certain foot type or and yeah. then when you tell them that they don't it's like well I've spent you know so many years thinking that this is and it's, it's like someone with back pain and you you know you try and 
you know, you try and take away some of those myths. But yeah, it can be frustrating for the Dude, patient. you're just being too nice. It's not it's not all concerns, it's just me. <laughs> no, no, no. I I'm very say, I'm very blunt. I'm very yeah. blunt and I, I just say it as it is and I don't do BS and I don't do yeah. rainbows and unicorns. And no, but I think it, I think it's known like <laughs> consultants. They, you know, they'll tell it as it is. You know, not all, but, but some. But it's not a bad thing. But um, like I think it's. Said. But I think it's kind of. Oh, I think the problem is, people love being able to diagnose and tell people something. So I think there's a group of people who just love saying, "Oh, you overpronate." I think there's a an element of an incentive. There's a certain group of people who will tell a person they're overpronating so they can sell them an orthotic. Yeah. You know, and if the only thing in your toolbox is an orthotic and it happens to be a, and a very lucrative piece of kit, you know, that you get made and profit from, then yeah, everyone is overpronating and everyone needs an orthotic. Yeah. Or a specialist running shoe. So I think there's a bit of an incentive there to do that. And I often have to tell my patients that it's perfectly normal to pronate. And a lot of people have. And actually the word overpronate, what does that even mean? Everyone pronates to a different degree. And a lot of people think a flat foot is overpronating. These are you know, it's the di- you know, what is it? What are we even defining? Yeah. As, you know, pathology but i think we've digressed a bit we're talking about stress fractures and bone injuries how do you manage them what do you recommend to your patients so initially i'll always i'll always include a multidiscipline team so if someone i think is has signs of energy deficiency i'll make sure that they're getting they're seeing maybe a a sports doc and getting some blood tests etc just to make sure they're not low in vitamin d and another kind of key areas physio wise offload offload the area create an environment that's going to protect it if depending on the grade as well so that's where the scan is useful if someone's got tibial you know if we look at what we refer to as the Fredrickson scale grade 2b okay well there's bone stress reaction there's no fracture mm-hmm. line okay well I'm I would be very reluctant to put someone in the boot if they're pain-free walking because like you said with the tendon we don't want to let the air decondition but if someone's got a fracture then you do need a period where you offload to protect it to allow it heal and often that will involve me reaching out to someone like you which i have done many a time say should i put someone this in an air cast boot crutches what do you think um and depending on that different situation offload for a period of time find things that you enjoy doing because you're going to be bored for a number of weeks yeah 100%. I mean, I I find it very difficult because with bone stress lesions, it's so variable how long it takes to heal. Mm. Um, Quite often you don't see on an x-ray. You're going often by clinically palpating the bone and pain can be very subjective and it's very weird. Some people have pain for no reason at all and other people have, you know, minimal symptoms when they should be crippled. And you're like, what? You know, this person's got a normal x-ray and they're in agony. And this person's got the worst possible x-ray and they're walking around just fine. So pain is really bizarre. Yeah. So an MRI scan can be very useful to grade how much swelling and edema is in a bone. And the problem is it can take so variable. Some people get over a stress factor in six weeks. Some people can easily have it for six months to a year. And then it comes down to bone biology, compliance, rest. I have to admit, it's not a nice diagnosis. It's just, it's very 
difficult to manage because everyone's different mm. and everybody wants me to tell them I don't have a crystal ball. Yeah. Makes it hard. Yeah. Um, so, okay. Knees, tendons, bones. What's the next one? The next one. Well, uh, can I just finish on the bone bit? Just one sure. Just quickly. Cause I think this is, qu it's quite important because when someone gets a stress fracture, their chances of getting again are really high. Mm. So offload, but the thing is that you know the the body is able to adapt. So by improving, like bone mineral density, genetically is going to be the main factor on how strong our bones are. But if we can improve bone mineral density by even a small amount, the fatigue resistance we have within a bone is significantly greater. Which I obviously you know, but just for the 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 listeners. So when I'm then going back, when someone comes out of the boot, mm. we put them on uh, depending on if it's a high risk or etc we'll put them on like a bone loading program mm. and you know anecdotally the benefits in terms of the re-injury rate or what i've seen has been a lot less providing that they're sleeping and nutrition which sure we might talk about in a bit is is essential so putting them on a bone loading program to then set them up for success going forward is really important because often the re-injury rate within the first six to 12 months is really high yeah is frustrating for the likes of, of you and me. So yeah, that's one thing that I just wanted to mention. No, it's a really good point. And I think the nutrition is a really good point. It's um it's amazing how many people think they're eating healthily. And um, you know, I say, you know, what's your diet? Like, oh I'm really I've got a great diet, I'm a very healthy diet. And I go, Okay, well, so like what do you eat? Oh, uh, in the morning I have special K. It's like, oh my God, where do where do I begin with this? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like they think bran flakes and special K is the start of a good diet and it's like oh you know and and or you know i'm vegan yeah i i eat fake burgers you're just like oh okay right where do i begin with this but yeah nutrition i think is very important and supplements yeah. like vitamin d unfortunately everyone's pretty much vitamin d deficient in the uk <laughs> Uh, in the UK with with our cloud cover and lack of sun and everything else. So yeah, vitamin D is a big one when it comes to bone health. And I recommend everyone should take vitamin D supplements and vitamin K2 along with it. What dosage of vitamin D would you give? Yeah, that's a really good question. So it all depends. Um, so for example, with my skin color, um, I block the natural sunlight. So I need to, I think I need to have a higher dosage. I was vitamin D deficient. Mm. Um, when I went through on this health kind of journey, I did whole <laughs> blood panel. I noticed I was very deficient, and that made me made me realize why, <laughs> because um, why I was tired in the morning, struggling with my sleep, lost my hair, all these things, vitamin D deficiency, depression, yeah. anxiety, insomnia, weight gain. All these things can happen with vitamin D. Um, immunosuppression is reduced. Yeah. If you're getting cold sores quite a lot, mm. frequent colds, you know, flus, um, can even be a risk factor for cancer. Yeah. So vitamin D deficiency, vitamin D deficiency is not good. Um, so yeah, for me, I started taking very high dose vitamin D supplements, but initially I had an injection of something like three hundred thousand units to boost my boost levels you, up. Yeah. And and then I started taking vitamin D supplements of about four thousand units yep. a day. And then I did blood tests to check that they were coming up. Yeah. And after a year, my levels were still not 100% normal. They were 80. And it should be between 100 and 150. And yeah. what's really bizarre is now most places will tell you that if your level's over 50, 
you're normal. Well, that's just nonsense. What they've done is they've moved the goalposts. They've realized that so many people are deficient. To make it look more normal, let's just lower the normal range down to 50. It's kind of crazy. Yeah. So normally you should be between 100 and 150. Um, I now went and started taking 10,000 units to really get my levels up, and I got way high. I got like 160 after my next blood panel check after a year. So now I'm taking 5,000 a day, and that's my maintenance dose. Would you still take that in the summer? Yeah, I do, actually. Yeah. yeah. What summer? <laughs> Dude, what summer? I know. <laughs> but it's it's interesting because it's it's something that I will see a lot well, a lot of athletes when they come in they're, they're not taking any vitamin D supplements even during the winter and they're training 15 hours a week some of them yeah um, and then a lot of times when they pick up these bone stress injuries and it's highlighted they'll be given it'll be, you know from what I've seen is 4,000 international units yeah so that's, so that's what my wife takes that's what I take yeah 4,000 units I think is per- I mean it sounds like a lot yeah. okay it sounds like a crazy amount like 4,000 units it's, it's not 4,000 units is just I think it's a good level to, to just take I would take vitamin K2, 50 to 100 micrograms along with it. It helps with the absorption and there's other reasons as well. Yep. But just the two should be taken together. I mean, we could talk about supplements yep. another day. But I think that's just the basic yep. thing that everyone should be taking. Yeah, that's my I think it's important. Mm. So, anything else? Running injury-wise? I would say the other one is just soft tissue in terms of like muscle strains. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so like calf strains in particular because, again, it's just such high demand in the area hamstrings, quads, hips. And what's interesting is gradient plays a big factor. Right. So running uphill. Yeah. You need to use your push your body mass going up against gravity. So therefore, you're going to use your hip muscles more, your calf muscles more. So often when someone, they've been away on holidays or they've been away in the countryside for the weekend and they all of a sudden they start doing much more hills and they come back, Aiden have picked up a... Often mm. a soft tissue injury, sometimes tendons as well. So that would be the that would be the other kind of one that I would see quite a lot. What about ITB? Mm. Yeah, ITB is another big one. Jogger's knee. Yeah, so runners. N- so ITB, lateral pain on the outside of the knee, comes on at like a predictable onset into a run. So like you're too keen to run, all mm. of a sudden the outside of your knee becomes quite sharp and painful. It's an interesting one because you previously thought it was like a bursa getting frictioned. Mm. From my understanding, when they've done like cadaver studies, is there's not an or knee replacements, there's not, uh, there's no actual bursa there. Mm. <laughs> so it's, uh, I think it's just more, hi- it's a highly innervated with nerves between the ITB and the bone. There's like this fat tissue which has a lot of nerves in that area, and that gets sensitive because the area has been exposed to more load mainly someone decides i'm gonna just go on a long run on the weekend or mm. more downhill or uneven campers yeah no i because I, i've had it once or twice mm. and again it's just i think it's it's when i've done a long road a uh, run sorry yeah 16k and it's like a little bit faster than normal yep. do you know one thing i stopped doing listening to um upbeat dance music when i run i just found i was doing i was running too fast yeah without even knowing it you know the tempo of the beat, it's like ah. <laughs> yeah, and it takes your it takes your cadence up, and when your cadence comes up, you start running. Yes. Faster. Yes. So yeah, I stopped. I stopped listening to dance music when I run. <laughs> <laughs> Keep it for your races or events that you do. So before you talk about marathon running and training, 
it's kind of funny. I, I I don't think I'll ever run a marathon, but never say never. You never know. Yeah. I just think it takes so much time to prepare for it. And I really want you to talk about your journey of your injuries, if you don't mind. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um. So, yeah, talk about marathons and, and your running injuries and your, exp- and your experience of that. But before we come to that, what do you think about the different types of running? Like people who run on a treadmill. I mean, is that as beneficial for you to run on a treadmill? Is it the same? Is it, is, is it just as difficult running compared to outdoors or is it a completely different thing? So I think ru- treadmills can be a very valuable tool. So when you're running on a treadmill, your forces in certain areas will be greater, such as calf and Achilles, because depending on the treadmill, but most of them, they've, they're quite soft. So as you're landing and it's a soft land, it's like running on soft surface or to exaggerate a bit, running on sand. Mm. Run on sand, your calves feel incredibly sore after yeah. because you're, the ground is moving, whereas the road, because it's solid, it pushes back, it gives you a bit of energy return. Mm. So running on a treadmill, if someone has an Achilles or calf issue, it's something that I would almost get them to encourage them later on to do when they're back running. Okay, well, let's try and improve your resilience in this area. Mm. So I think treadmill running can be very effective. If someone has knee pain, mm. bringing the gradient up to 5%, incredible at reducing loads in the knee. You can reduce like your your eccentric forces in your knee by up to 50% mm. because you know your knee is traveling at a slower speed because it's hitting a hill. Yeah. Uh, so it's a great tool for, for, for different injuries in terms of offloading and also improving capacity. So I'm a big fan of treadmills if they're used in the right way. Yeah. It's funny. I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> it's and I get, I get why you're not. It's in the gym. It's yeah. dark. Seeing all the jimbo, himbo, gym bunnies or whatever walking around. It's just, oh, it's, it's not, not for me. Likewise, it's not something I enjoy doing. My, uh, my sister-in-law bought a treadmill for my brother-in-law it's in the garage there's no window there's no nothing it's just a tv in front it's my idea of hell yeah (laughs) i think the best thing about running is to get out get outside in nature in sunlight in fresh air i think that's one of the the extra benefits of running like people need to get outside yeah get outside fresh air sunlight even on a cloudy day, there's still sunlight. People don't realize how much sunlight there is on a cloudy, overcast day. Um, and if you can get into a park or somewhere surrounded by greenery, like I think there's studies that show being surrounded by nature and greenery is better for your mental health. So it's not just a physical benefit Absolutely. and endurance. It's mentally yep. cleansing. And God, we live in stressful times. We do. So we do. And it's I, I agree with you. Getting out in nature is is just so important for physical or sorry for mental well-being and like you said the research shows it and one of my one of my favorite statistics about running is that it can reduce all-cause mortality by up to 30 percent wow i didn't know that so we've all got that's that's crazy we've all got 100 percent risk of dying right we (laughs) know it's gonna happen but in terms of relative risk in runners in comparison to non-runners yeah 30% 30% less likely to to die over certain issues. So cardiovascular disease is number one. Yeah. I think cancer is 23%. You're reducing risk of... of wow. Because that's number two. Yeah. Yeah. I believe so. So the, the paper the referencing is a, a systematic review and a meta-analysis by, I think it's Pedisic wow. et al. 
got a great study. Um, and even running once a week can show those benefits. So running four or five times is not necessarily going to, you know, they haven't proven that it's going to be better than you running once or twice. Yeah. So that's something why, that's one of the biggest reasons I love running is the benefits it gives you physically and mentally. Mm. And then it's the whole, oh, well, I don't want to run because it's bad for my knees and going to develop osteoarthritis. It's the opposite. Listen, buddy, that's a really good point. So I was told never to run because I had cordyquina. Do you know what cordyquina is? I do, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So scary. Oh, dude, it's so scary. So just in case no one knows what who's listening, cordyquina, cordyquina means horse's tail. So in your spine, if you look at the spine, as the brain nerves come down the spinal column, it looks like a horse's tail. And if a disc bulges out and squishes all those nerves... That's called cordyquina syndrome. It stops all the nerve impulses to your bowel, your bladder, your legs. You can't walk. You can't. You literally piss your pants. Yeah. You know, you have no bowel control. Uh, not good. Not good. And so you I need to act fast, right? You need to act fast. Because if you don't decompress these nerves, the nerve damage, you know, literally within a few hours, it's permanent. And then you're permanently damaged. So, oh painful story in my 20s i was in a car accident give way stop and this car crashed into the back of me now i had a history of back pain anyway so i had a degenerative disc spine again we could talk about that a lot of my training surgical training standing holding things from an arm's length and you know as a junior doctor in those days you know you're told to just hold this and don't move yeah and you know aortic aneurysm whatever repair three hours just standing there and your back's killing you. And, you know, in those days, you just had to freaking do it. Yep. Now, you'd get into trouble. You'd be, you know, it's bullying and harassment, mm. treating a junior doctor like that. <laughs> 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 um, but anyway, lots of different reasons. I, had a, I, had, I didn't have a great back. And then I went in this accident and something changed. And I had what a, a chronic um, cordoepidural, which, uh, cordoequina syndrome, which, which means that it, comes on slowly over a yeah. few weeks so slowly over a few weeks i'm just getting more and more pain walking both legs shooting i go and see my surgeon and where i was working and he goes you need an mri we get an mri he goes oh wow that's a massive freaking disc uh, i'll do a steroid injection try and get it to calm down it did not work it did the opposite know, my pain intensified. You put all this volume yeah. into and it squished my nerves even, even more. more. So this idea that injections are always going to be the best. Yeah. Just, 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 just. So now it's the weekend. It's midnight. I'm pissing my pants. Literally. My feet are numb. I can't feel them. You know, I, you know I'm passing wind, but it, it doesn't, I don't have control. It's just this loose... And I'm like, holy macaroni! I, I'm ge- I've got cordyquina. Did you so know it? You obviously. You I know. did know, and I was yeah. I've never been so nervous. My heart was fluttering. I was like, oh my god, it's midnight. Who the where the frack am I going to get an operation? So we get a taxi, get driven to guys in St Thomas's, get in the A E department. I'm like, guys, I'm an orthopedic registrar. I've got cordyquina. I've got massive disc prolapse. I've had an injection. Cordyquina cordial epidural, you know, I'm I'm in trouble. I'm fasted. I'm good to go. Please decompress me. And this registrar's like, oh, I can't make that decision. I need to phone the consultant. Phone the consultant. 
comes back and goes, oh, the consultant says he can't operate on you tonight. I'm like, what the? Like, there's very few emergencies yeah. in orthopedics, but this is one of them when you're taught as a trainee. So I ring the guy. Turns out I knew him. We had worked together at one point when he was a registrar, six-year registrar. I was a first-year registrar. I was like, hey, dude, it's me. You need to sort me out. <laughs> I'm in a bit of a pickle. <laughs> and um, and he basically goes, I'm sorry. Um, I can't come in right now. I've got a list tomorrow. I went, well, do me first thing on the list. No, no, it's a private list. I went, dude, but I, if I don't have this now, I'm going to have permanent nerve damage. Oh, no, the studies show, the latest studies show, if, you know, if you, you know, there's no difference after 48 hours. I was like, yeah, because the damage is done. I still got a chance to fix me now. I, I only developed the symptoms an hour ago. I'm good to go. Yeah. He ju- he, and he, he just started making, mis- you know, excuses. Yeah. And I was like, what the frack? I'm an, I'm a colleague. I'm a patient. Yeah. I'm in your profession. I worked with you. And he didn't want to come in. So I had to self-discharge. Get into another taxi and go all the way to King's College Neurosurgical Unit. And I'm on the phone, desperate, and I asked to speak to the on-call neurosurgeon. And the switchboard go, and who are you? Yeah. And if you're a lay person, they'll tell you to F off. Yep. So I said, I'm an orthopedic surgeon and I've got an urgent referral to make, which is kind of true. Yeah. <laughs> the referral is me. <laughs> so this surgeon comes on. Now, like, 1 o'clock in the morning, he goes, yeah, hi, can I help you with it? I said, this is a very unusual call. I am an orthopedic registrar. This is where I work. Unfortunately, I've got cauda equina, and the surgeon St. Thomas's doesn't want to operate on me. I'm in a really bad way. I'm fasted. Please, can you decompress my spine? He said, is this a joke? I went, no, this is real. Um, I'm incontinent, can barely walk. And he said, look, just come straight to A&E. I'll be with you shortly. We'll operate on you tonight. Dude, I freaking cried. Oh, my God. So That's then tough. I arrive at A&E, and they're waiting for me. I didn't have to register, didn't have to go in. They got me in a chair. They wheeled me directly to the MRI unit. Now it's two in the morning or something. Got scanned. Saw the surgeon. And he went, that's a f- huge. And beep, huge yeah. disc. We're operating on you now. You definitely fasted? I went, yeah, sign here. Blah, blah, blah. I went, I don't, I don't care about the risk. Just do it. So I signed the consent form. And um, I got wheeled into theatre. Got changed. They put a catheter in me. The anaesthetist was this blonde anaesthetist and she was very attractive. She stood over me upside down. And at that time I had hair, believe it or not. (laughs) And she stroked my hair and went, relax. I think the heart monitor was showing I was quite nervous. She went, do you smoke? Do you take any drugs? I went, no. She went, well, you're really going to enjoy this. And she injected something in me. Yeah. And my body just disconnected. And I felt myself just 
elevate and then I fell asleep. Yeah. And I woke up and I was and the nurse was like, Do you want a sip of water? I was like, No, no, I can't, I can't. I'm I'm about to have an operation. She went, You had your <laughs> operation. <laughs> it's it's now the morning. I was like, What? And I looked down, I could move my feet. I could feel the catheter. Yeah. And that was great because it was all numb before. I couldn't feel my my penis. It was totally numb, frozen. And um, I took the catheter out. I, d- I said to the nurses, can I take the catheter out? And I just sat, stood at the toilet trying to pee and it, nothing would happen. Sugar. They're going to have to put it back in. And I let the tap run and eventually I was able to pee very slowly and the flow wasn't very good. I was like, oh my God, this is ever going to work. But it did. It came back after six weeks. What was the moment like when you woke and you were able to feel your feet? Oh, it's amazing. I was so happy. But it doesn't end there. The surgeon then said, I'm a pediatric neurosurgeon. I did this as an emergency. You're going to have to, if you have any problems, see an adult surgeon. I was like, okay, hopefully I'll be fine. Yeah. I went back to work. It's interesting. It's a bit more complicated than this. I had very little sympathy from my surgeons, my consultant at the time, professor head of training when i said to him oh you know i've got a problem with my back i'm in agony it was like man up yeah didn't give a shit didn't care i even showed an an mri that i'd had beforehand saying look i've got this massive disc prolapse i can't help you with your private list and he just looked at me and went yeah that's effing big all right go home then no no hold on let me contact the spinal guys. Hey, you should get yourself looked at. Oh, wow, this is huge. It was like, okay, you can't help me with this private list. Yeah, all right, go. Yeah, I'll find someone I can. I'll find someone I can. And this guy's like head of training now. Still. Still, massive guy in orthopedics. And he's just like, what the fuck? <laughs> it's sad, isn't it? Because you know how many other people after you will have probably gone through similar things. So on the ward... When I woke up, there's two other guys with um, crutches and catheters in. And I was chatting to them. And they were like, wow, your catheter's out. I was like, yeah. Um, we've been told we'll have to have catheters for life. Because it was too late by the time we presented. And they both had cardioquina. They had both cardioquina. And that's the thing. It's time critical. You have to get it done quickly. So, you know, avoid an operation whenever you can. But God damn it, have it when you need it. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Now, the problem that I had is I still had problems in my back and pain. Different. Really agonizing pain. And everywhere I went, they would just say, oh, for God's sake, stop whinging and whining and stop, you know, you've, there's nothing wrong with you and you've had your operation. What's, what's your problem? You want to be a failed back? You want to be a chronic pain person? You want to be a crazy person? Went off, did a fellowship in Sydney, came back. Guess what? Got caught in again. Yeah, dude. Again. Same thing. Did not expect that. So then I went to St. George's Hospital because I, I was staying with my brother at the time. And um, by the way, in between this, you know, my marriage broke down. Not a bad thing. Yeah. And um, so now I'm at St. George's and I had to fight to get this operation again. I had to really, like, really come down heavy on them and say, 
you're operating on me tonight. So now I had surgery again at two in the morning. And the next day, the guy comes up to me and goes, the surgeon, you had spinal stenosis for the last 18 months. So where you had cardioquina before and they took out the disc, they left some of the disc material in your spinal canal. So you had spinal stenosis and, and, and the nerves were being pinched and that's why you're in agony. And, you know, they should have done something about it. I went, I went to so many people and they just dismissed me. Spinal surgeons, colleagues, people I'm working for. And, and a guy was like, I'm so sorry. So the problem was you had spinal stenosis and then you had a little bit extra disc come out and it wiped out your nerves once more. Yeah. So now I've done a full laminectomy. I've removed everything. I've cleared it all up. You're going to be fine. But the long-term problem is you're going to get arthritis in your spine. You're going to need spinal fusion by the time you're 40. You're going to have chronic back problems. You might want to think about changing career and never run. This is where it's coming to. Mm -hmm. So his advice was never run. Running is bad for you. So the thing is, that was like almost 17 years ago. Aiden, do you know what's really good for my back? Running. Running. I haven't had a spinal fusion. My back feels bloody good. And I'll say, it's for whatever reason, if I haven't run for two, three weeks, that's when my back feels stiff and achy. Mm. And I've actually since then, I think I've seen a paper or two which shows that your discs are better hydrated when you run than if you don't run. So this whole idea that I was told years ago, don't run, was actually really bad advice. Yeah. (laughs) Anyway, that was a long-winded route to (laughs) telling you that running is good for your back. Yeah, but I mean, what a story to go through that Kodakoina and be as inactive as you are now. Twice you went through it. Yeah. I think part of it is like, I don't like people telling me what to do. Mm. Um, I think it's really taught me the importance of listening to patients. You know, no matter how crazy someone might seem, actually, even if they are, especially if they're very crazy, you should take them seriously. Because I'll tell you one thing, pain, chronic, severe, debilitating pain, Aiden, it drives you insane. Mm. It, it drives you crazy. And if it stops you doing things, yeah, it can make you angry, it can make you irritable, it can make you depressed. And if a patient comes to you with those kind of symptoms, instead of being upset with them or annoyed with them, or frustrated with them, you should show empathy and love and try and help them. And I think too often doctors, if they don't understand something, they get irritated and annoyed. Yeah. And they just want to dismiss you and shut you up. Actually, you shouldn't do that. Yeah. I th- and that's a problem with the medical field. And I've been burnt personally yeah. more than one occasion. This was just one story. Unfortunately, there's even more. You're going to have to listen to my podcast <laughs> now to hear those <laughs> other stories. So listen, we've talked about um, yeah, pains and soft tissues. I mean, can you quickly touch upon your injuries if you don't mind and your yeah. marathon i mean yeah. were they before or after or what happened like because 
I take it that, you know, you're a physio, you know how to train, you know how to run. Why did you get an injury? Why wh- Why did you get problems? Because you, you should know better. Oh, well, no, no, it's your <laughs> turn to listen to my story. Let's do how it. How long have you got? So, yeah, well, I I had started with ACL, two ACL reconstructions, 17 and 20, I believe. Um, After the first one, went back playing after five months. Whereas no Sorry, how long ago was that? This is back, so I'm, what, 33 now. I was 17 at the time. How did you get them? playing football so i was ah. signed semi-professional at the time yeah you know hoping for a contract at 18 and tore my acl ouch and usually you know acl is, is at that age it's not great mm. um and back then as well it was obviously it's kind of advanced a bit now five months came back played my second game tore it again ah. same knee had the surgery mm-hmm. and then you know released from that club so at that time, probably started enjoying my social life a bit more than I should have been. Well, I mean, I was early 20s, right? So I was having a good time. And then I tore it in my opposite knee when I was 22. Didn't have the surgery. So I went 10 years without the ACL. Mm. And then my knee, would you believe, during a physio session, it was a footballer, we were on the pitch, pitch session, passed me the ball, I jumped, landed, my knee completely oh. gave way. So I was just... And I was always minding it for that 10 years. There was things I couldn't do because I had an unstable knee. Mm. So for anyone that doesn't know, the ACL provides a lot of stability to the knee. Some people can cope very well without one. Some people not so much. I was probably in between. I was able to do a lot, but there was still a lot I couldn't do. Mm. So then I decided to get it done um, from a great surgeon friend of mine here in London. Unfortunately, the surgery didn't go as planned in the sense that I'm not quite sure what happened, but the ligament failed. I developed a tibial, uh, you call it insufficiency stress reaction slash fracture. Not quite what, sure. What did they use your hamstring tendon? Use my hamstring, yeah. And use it failed. Graft failed. So what we, ah. what we think happened was the pin where it goes through your shin to hold the ACL down. That there was something I knew early on that something wasn't quite right i developed a lot of swelling there i had kind of persistent pain Mm. and you know we just decided to let's just see how it it responds and and then i just had this massive swelling localized right something's not right so we end up scanning the knee and it showed that the ligament the acl was had become detached Mm. so then exactly a year from the day i had the surgery i had a revision where they put the and bear in mind you know same surgeon same surgeon so what made you keep your trust with that surgeon because a lot of people go ah this person botched it up i'm i'm gonna go someone else i see a lot of his knees Mm -hmm. i see a lot of his patients who come and they've all had great outcomes um and sometimes shit happens i'm so glad you said that Aiden. yeah because can i be honest with you you know what is the most stressful thing for me not the surgery when i'm operating it's like music's playing in my head it's all just wonderful i love it i'm so relaxed you know it's just yeah. Oh, I'm in my zone. What really stresses me out is the moment the patient is wheeled out of the operating mm. theater. Because guess what? It's out of my control. Yeah. It's everything's out of my control. I I don't know how their biology is going to be. I don't know how they're going to heal. I don't know what their compliance is going to be like. I don't know what what shits down the road. Yeah. And the thing is, shit can happen. The only person who will never have a surgical complication is one who doesn't have surgery. Yeah. Just like you said, you know, the only person who's not going to have a running injury is the one who doesn't run. Exactly. The only person who doesn't have a sports injury is one that doesn't do sports. 
you know, it, it just comes with the territory, I'm afraid. And it's unpredictable. And I think it's really nice that you kept your trust in that surgeon. I didn't question it for a second. And that's really good. I didn't question for a second. Some people have said, would you not go for a second opinion? Mm. Even some, you know, specialist physios. And I was like, not a hope. Because I, I knew, you know, that that person put every, like, you know, it's like when you operate on family. Yeah. It's like, let's warm the theatre so up So who's this surgeon? Who is this surgeon? If you don't uh, sorry, knee surgeon. So Paul Tricker. Paul Tricker. I've heard really good things about Amazing. him. Amazing. Yeah. I've heard good yeah. things about Loves him. Loves his job, like yourself, passionate about it. Um, And yeah, I mean, I've seen so many of his ACLs and not one have I had an issue with, you know, mm. touch wood, all being amazing. So went that, had that. Sod's done. Law, the running physio. Yeah. Is the one <laughs> that's a complication. Yeah, and I, you know, I, I guess in amongst all that, I had issues like mentally. I was struggling. I mm. had issues with alcohol. I, you know, finally have ended up gave giving it up. Oh, good for you. Yeah, yeah, I gave it up. I also had, which I don't think I've not many people notice, but I had a gambling issue, mm. chronic for ten years. Wow. So whilst I was in the NHS, mm. whilst I was working private practice, I was, I was like. On it, there was one point on a daily basis, mm. I was gambling between mm. patients. Oh wow! Yeah, it was really bad. But dude, you know this is a big thing for you to confess. You yeah. know, like well, I mean, I, a lot. Of, I'm, 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 I'm happy speaking about it because that's now been four years since I, you know, had a bet. You know, so Amazing. two years since I've drank. Amazing. And you know, although there was times where I was, I was at the lowest point that mm. I could possibly be where i thought at one point there was only one way out oh no and you know i knew that there was help out there so i reached out for help but through this period i was still training like a full-time athlete at that time whilst also working so mm. i was very high functioning considering i had a lot of these issues that not many people knew about my family didn't well, my family knew like drinking you know i could go where i didn't wouldn't drink for six weeks three, four months because I was training. And then when I drink, I would just lose control of it. You know, yeah. I would just to the point where I wasn't working and I wasn't doing what I wanted to do in, in, in my life. So, but that played a part with a lot of the injuries that just kept coming back. So you like your brain is very poor at differentiating from physical and psych psychological stress. Mm. Like stress is stress, right? Yeah. So I think that played a big part with all my injuries. And since then, since I've stopped doing all that and, you know, Oh, my life is is great, and it genuinely is. Like I don't, I don't drink. I still go and socialize. I have more money now than I ever had when I was gambling. <laughs> I had freaking nothing, um, and so now when I when I had these injuries, I think it was just it was like me not putting my body back together, but it was me repairing myself from the mm. trauma. I think that I had physically and mentally for you know, for a good 10 years. Mm. Um, so I think now come outside of that, had that last knee surgery and I've been more, I think I had issues with nutrition. You mentioned earlier, like guilt eating. I definitely, you know, I definitely do that. When I stopped rowing, I was 86 kilos, feeling amazing. Mm. When, and I went up to 100. Like that's quite a, oh, wow. a big increase. Yeah. I'm now about 93 yeah, I'm still trying to get a little bit lower. Yeah, um, so I think all of this played a part with the the reoccurring injuries, and and had that last knee surgery, and got into the London marathon. How long ago was that? How that long was, was it? now coming up to ten months. Wow. So I had it in, yeah, I had it in July, 
end of July of last that, year. So that sounds like a lot for some people, but I know ACLs take a good year to recover from. Yeah, well, with this one, because there was, it takes, yeah, so you know we would say nine months to 12 months before you're looking at return to sport. But because it was a revision, we didn't have to drill tunnels into the shin. So it was essentially, I said, look, it was, let's go in, let's have a look. And he said, if I'm in there and I see something, I'm going to do whatever I can to give you the strongest knee possible. I said, fine, providing it's not a graft from, you know, my my patella tendon or another hamstring. So we ended up using, he used like a bit of rope and a button and the ACL was still there. Oh. So ACL was still there. It just become detached because the mm. screw failed. Mm. So then we, yeah, so we what we did then was, uh, well, he pinned the ACL down and... It's worked fine. I know. Oh, fantastic. I ran the London Marathon in three hours and 50 minutes. Ten, ten minute PV. That's incredible. And I had no knee pain. Wow. Zero knee pain. Wow. So having been told, Aiden, not from this surgeon, from previous surgeons, don't run your knees. You will end up having a knee replacement at a very early age. Um, no had a total of six knee surgeries and I don't get pain in my knees at all that's amazing and i run i run now getting back into it after the marathon you know at for the marathon is running 40 50 kilometers a week and no issues that's amazing yeah that's amazing it shows how adaptable the body is right you know i don't think people realize and appreciate and i think it's also coming from public health government big pharma you know oh your body's not you need your you need to boost your immune system you need to take this and take that and there's no such thing as natural immunity. I know we're digressing a bit, but I think it's people don't understand how miraculous the human body is, yep. how resilient it is, how much toxins are thrown at yep. it on a daily basis. And we, we cleanse ourselves off these toxins. And we're talking about chemicals in yep. the air, in the water, the electromagnetic spectrum, you name it. Yep. You know, we're bombarded with this nonsense. And we're still able to function and think. And what we need to do is support our body yeah. and appreciate our body by the choices that we make. Yeah. Not to, I mean, I so I don't, I'm not religious. I believe in God, but I'm not religious. I'm over religion. <laughs> Ex-member of a cult, yeah. another story. Yeah. Um, But, you know, that's where we need to do. We need to look after our bodies. We need to protect ourselves. And you only have one. We only have one. Mm. So I don't drink, not for religious reasons, but one, because I've never drunk, originally religious. But now I think there's like no nutritional benefits, a lot of calories. Yeah. And I'm worried about that control issue. Yeah. I'm worried that I've got everything really in a good place right now. You know yeah. when you get your life and your shit together? Yeah. I've got my shit together. Yeah. I don't need something that's going to make me fall off. Yeah. You know, I just don't need that. And I've seen so many people you have done that. And I go, I don't want to be that person. I, and I don't trust myself to have like a, a glass or yeah. a beer because I just feel like, ah, I don't know where it could lead me. and I don't want to end up there. I mean, it's, it is a, it's a massive issue in just general public health is, is just alcohol consumption and also people not meeting their daily exercise requirements. Like look at, the rising, uh, the amount of rising case in obesity, the numbers. Like it's massive. Like this, th this, here's a statistic for you. So if you look at 
the recommended exercise per week. So vigorous exercise. So it's moderate to vigorous exercise per week, 150 minutes, right? That's mm. what's recommended at least. Mm-hmm. There's a study that came out that, suge- that reports if people started meeting those people who are not currently meeting those exercise requirements, if they started meeting those physical exercise requirements, we would see less than 5 million, or sorry, more than 5 million million premature deaths per year. So we would reduce that. Wow. That's, you know, by just getting people to exercise 150 minutes per week. That's it's, the best, it's the best medicine. You know, it's... But there's no money in it. There you go. Can't market it. Can't sell it. No. That's the problem. It's, you know, you you go you go to certain schools and you see what their curriculum is, what food they're giving to people and it starts at a young age. And yeah. I do I do get environment plays a role where you grow up, you know, income, all of this has massive factors. Mm. It's not just that people don't exercise. They don't. They're not educated about it. They don't 100%. have access to safe areas. They don't have access to nutritionist food, and that, you know, it needs to start there. And I think that's hundred percent. You know, but again, doesn't you know wh- wh- who's going to benefit from that, right? So let's go back to you've had your second knee operation. At what point did you think, okay, I can start training for the marathon? Like, how long did you take to train for the marathon? I started training, so I went back to running after four, three, four months. So I'm very, I'm very meticulous on testing, making sure I have, you know, with running, I want to make sure that one limb is as strong as the other to minimize kind of compensatory patterns. So generally, we will say less than ten percent deficit. So I worked really hard at developing my strength, and I was at a point where I knew. Did you see a physio? Did I see a physio? I didn't. No, I usually do. You trained yourself. I trained myself. I usually do for my own injuries. I've yeah. seen, you know, for my hip, I had FAI, you know, femoral acetabular impingement, which is, you know, not nice. It's You've had that? Yeah, yeah. Oh, God. So it's not a nice diagnosis because you know it's going to take months. Did you have surgery? I didn't have surgery. Don't have surgery. No, no <laughs> I, I know, I know. So I saw Benoit Matthew, so hip and groin specialist in London. I'm sure you may have heard of him. Amazing. So I saw him and, yeah. No, no issues with my hip now. So after four months, I went back running, mm-hmm. gradually building things up, and it was it was just a case of right, let's just increase the frequency, let's get fit, let's get healthy. Yeah. And then I entered the ballot, got a place, and I thought I have to go and experience this. Wow. And for me, this is your first marathon. This is my. I did the London virtual with a friend. Right. And there, you know, it was it was early pandemic and mm. did it around Battersea Park. Horrendous. Didn't like it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, crying going around the last few laps. But this for me was my having gone through, you know, the gambling for ten plus years, mm. coming off the alcohol, you mm. know, I, I I gave up two jobs and one day I decided I have to go back home because otherwise things won't end well. So I moved back home, was back home for three or four months. And back home is where? Back home in Ireland. Okay. So my parents and, you know, who were, I cannot say, were amazing, were helping me kind of overcome all these issues. And for me, running the marathon was like my, look, 
this is what I've achieved. And I probably get a bit emotional because... Oh, dude, good for you, man. It was... um. I oh, did honestly amazing. It was it was me showing them that this this is what this is where I am. This is where I am in life, you know, and I was I was running through halfway through the marathon. By the way, real real men cry. Yeah, no. Uh, it's it's you know, and it's it's coming from a place of like I've done it, you know. I've 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 beaten it and you know, it's it's where I was once at a point where I thought I, I wouldn't beat it. And for me, it was like, all right, I've, I've gone into the marathon. I knew I wouldn't run at a very fast time, mm. but I just wanted my, my girlfriend, who was my absolute rock through all of this, and my parents, I wanted them to be there. And coming into that last kilometer, and I saw them, and I ran over to them, and I was in so much pain, Ahmed. My oh. legs... <laughs> Everything was just so sore, but it was the best experience. And seeing them there, it was like, that was for me, it was like to show them, you know, that I'm in a good place. Oh, man. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm good. You don't have to worry because they worried about me for a long time. And, you know, this was me showing them and, and they could see it. Like they saw it after I had all my friends come. I had really, I've got really good people around me and and a lot of those are into exercise, into running. So it has literally changed my life. They say one run can change your day. Many runs can change your life. And that's what it did for me. So, yeah, when I got that medal and we all celebrated afterwards, it was, you know, it was it was one of the highlights that I can, you know, of my life. And, and that's, you know, if anyone's thinking of running a marathon, I'm definitely not going to try and convince you otherwise because it is incredible. It really is. I'm so happy for you. Yeah. I'm so happy for you. I mean, that's why I'm saying never say never. And <laughs> what you've described is very, very powerful. And I bet your parents are proud of you and your girlfriend. And you should be proud of yourself. You know, you've been. It's funny, isn't it? You've you've had you've you've described this trauma. Yeah. And I've had trauma. I think it's really important to embrace that trauma. Yeah. And own it. And yeah. think, do you know what? If you could turn back the clock. Don't erase those 10 years. No. Because Aiden, you are who you are now because of the trauma you've been through and because you've owned it and you've taken it. Yeah. And I would not change any of the trauma that I've been through in the past because I wouldn't be the person that I am today. And I think too many people kind of like skirt around it or bottle up their trauma or pretend it's not there or, or wallow in self-pity. Don't. Yeah. What you've done, this is exactly what you need to do. And... Well done. Oh, thanks. I appreciate it. So going back to your marathon training, listen, yeah. I really need to, like, for people listening out there, I, I get so many people who literally take up three months before the marathon and think they can run the marathon. How long do you need? So if you don't respect the marathon, you will get found out. You will. It's 42.2 kilometers. Your body gets put through a lot. You need to prepare for it generally speaking people will say 16 week plan 12 to 16 week it needs to be months before that so you need to for me i want to know when someone takes on a marathon that they're they have the ability to run let's say three four times a week if they wanted to if they wanted to do a session that involves a bit of intensity they're capable of doing it safely because if you're not and you then take on a marathon plan you're going to be asked to run, well, it depends who you work with. You can decide how many times. Most people will say minimum three times a week is mm. what you need. 
but they might only be running once a week. So you're increasing your frequency, volume, and intensity. And most commonly, you will see injuries between week four to week 10. Mm. Because the body is being l- loaded, it's breaking down, the rate of healing has, or the rate of um, loading has exceeded the rate of healing. Mm. Therefore, you're going to pick up an injury. So that window of four to 10 weeks is often you know that kind of danger zone if you like so if you get beyond that you're you're pretty good you're pretty good but i would say you and you need to factor in the strength training as yeah. well yeah so you need strength training you need to be able to sleep yeah and do three to four runs a week yeah you need a lot of time it's a big investment it is it is and and i think with running you can get up right you can get up in the morning you can go for your hour run that's what I love about it is if you look at cycling, for example, you know, people go out and they cycle for three or four hours mm. running. You can get a really, you know, you can within a week, if you've got five hours that you can dedicate, that's five hours of training. Mm. Of course, then is the time of you've got to get to bed early. You got to prepare yourself. You got to eat well. Um, otherwise, you're, you know, you're you're only fooling yourself if you're not. And I have seen that a lot where people come in. Yeah couple of weeks before the marathon expecting me to create miracles expecting me to give them an amazing answer where often it is simple advice and and quite often it's perhaps a bit too late at that point for them to to get to the marathon yeah 100 percent. i mean how do you deal with those difficult patients how do you be t- i mean i don't know about you but i find patients are changing i think there's an, an explosion in mental health yeah issues um i've had i've had mental health issues after my um, divorce, um, I went out to Sydney for a fellowship and um, I fixed this ankle fracture. I was in a very bad place. I was lonely, didn't know anyone out there, just left this painful relationship. And I was fixing this ankle fracture, a very simple one, bug standard, done a million times before. And the lady called me into that set room. Denise said, you need to speak to the patient. And she, sp- she was crying. I'm really scared about not waking up. I'm not going to die, am I? Never had an operation before. Young lady. And I was like, <sighs> kind of laughed. I was like, no, don't worry. Anesthetics are so safe. The patient will be fine. Done this a million times. She was like, okay, and squeezed my hand. I can still feel it. And um, I did the operation. Record time, 20 minutes. Because it was such a, it was a dream. Yeah. It was beautiful. She woke up, told her afterwards. She was so happy. Yeah. Crying again with tears in her eyes. Yeah. So happy. And uh, discharged same day. See you in two weeks time. Next day I go to work uh, and my boss at the time goes, we're doing an investigation because um, the patient died. I was like, what? what? Yeah. Um, turned out she had a massive clot in her lungs. So here I am. I'm out in Sydney, halfway around the world, away from friends and family. I'm feeling really down and depressed about the divorce, my first you know, marriage falling apart. And that's another story. Um, I've just told this patient she's going to be fine. Everything's fine. It's going to be great. She's telling me, please tell me I'm not going to die. No, you're not going to die. She's dead. How long after the surgery? Literally the next day. And there was an investigation to see if anything could have been done differently, if I did anything wrong. And I was told, no, it's not you. You did everything right. She had some funny genetic yeah. predisposition type thing. And that's why she died. But I was having nightmares. I would see her in my dreams every night. Am I going to be okay? Am I going to be okay? 
and me saying, yeah, you're going to be okay, laughing. You're going to be okay. Yeah. But you're dead. And that whole combination, I got really down. Yeah. And I remember standing at the balcony. I was renting a flat, like five, six floors up. And I was thinking, I just want to jump. I just want to kill myself. Life is shit. Yeah. I got no money. I got no wife. Hey, hate God. My religion's shit. I just killed a patient. I just, I'm worthless. Hate myself. I want to die. So I reached out to my sisters because I was too chicken. I was too scared to jump. That's honest truth. Because yeah. I was thinking, yeah. oh, you know what will happen? I won't even die. I'll end up paralyzed with multiple fractures. Because I'm an orthopedic surgeon. I know how it works. Yeah. I'll end up being in ITU. Their fellow will be so embarrassing. I'll have someone wiping my ass. I'll be dribbling into this, you know, down my side of my cheek I'll need to be drinking from a straw you know I won't even end up killing myself I'm so freaking pathetic I won't even do a good job of that so I stepped back from the balcony um, but I reached out to my sisters and I didn't say anything I was just speaking to them because I really missed them and they knew something was wrong mm. they were worried they came straight out they spent two weeks with me really I'm telling you they saved me yeah I needed them, and they just, their love just enveloped me and pulled me right back. I had a bit of therapy when I was out there. Um, that helped. Just two sessions, yeah. no, not more than that. Yeah. But she asked a few quite deep questions, self-reflect. Like, Why did you put up with that marriage, and why did you, you know, you say she was like this, and what about you? What was your self-esteem like? Yeah. Why didn't you put boundaries up? And those were difficult questions. You can blame other people, but you need to look at yourself. So, yeah. Long story short. Um, I mean, to be in that position, and it's <sighs> it's interesting, because you look at orthopedic consultants as physios, you know, you were in when we're going through our training as physios, we're on wards and we're looking, it's like, oh, there's a consultant. Mm. It's like they've got this aura about them. Yeah. But mm. yet, you were in a, such a position where you felt like w nothing. Yeah. We're just human beings. Yeah. Mate, we're just human beings. Yeah. So, I think, where what I was saying was mental, there's a health, ex mental health explosion. I think everyone at some point in their lives are touched by mental health issues. Just like everyone gets some kind of musculoskeletal problem yeah. or headache or back pain. We all have a little wobble sometimes, but some people are find it very difficult to get out of that hole that they're in. And with our poor diet, with our culture, social media, with lockdowns and whatever, mental illness is now massive. Huge. Dude, it's crazy. Huge. And I find that difficult dealing with that patient expectations you know if you deliver <coughs> bad news the saying don't shoot the messenger comes from for a reason yeah they don't like the person delivering the bad news even though they didn't make the bad news they just delivered the bad news yeah. they don't like you and i'm finding now as a doctor it's very difficult to manage people's expectations they're already highly strong anxious depressed i mean have you noticed something similar like that i mean with yeah, your clientele how do you manage it how do you work with that kind of stuff 
it is it's definitely something I see more of without question. And it is tricky. It is some some are trickier than others. And to be honest, some people I can't help. There has been patients where I have to have to turn around and say, I just don't think I'm the clinician that's going to be able mm. to help you in this position. Interesting. I have, you know, because previously I would have done everything to try and help everyone, whereas now I'm in a a point where actually I realize with certain people, certain yeah, uh, when we clash or, you know, but of course I will try and help everyone as best I can. But when I realize that someone else is perhaps going to be in a better position, yes, then I will say, I will suggest, and uh, you know, it's not, it's never, it's not happened too often, I must say, but there has been a number, a couple of times in terms of managing it, I guess I would often put it back on the patient and saying, what are your expectations for me? And then, it's almost like giving them the an like they'll answer it themselves, and then mm. I will say, "Look, well, I think that's perhaps maybe a bit unrealistic. This is what we would often see. Sometimes I think you just have to. I mean, it's our job to be honest. Yeah, we have to be honest. And if it's going to take a bit longer than they expect, then it's just trying to give the positives that we can focus on within that. Because a lot of you know, I've got some athletes who are trying to get on the GB squad." Mm. So they're trying to compete the Olympics. So if I'm telling them they're out for the next six weeks for a certain injury or twelve weeks with a stress fracture, you know, you have to you have to if nothing if you change nothing, nothing changes. We need to do something within your training. Now is a great time to do it. So I will try and say, look, this is what we can focus on. Mm. We can improve these things. That's only going to make you a better athlete going forward. Some will take it, some won't. Yeah. So we've been chatting for almost two hours. I think we need to wrap up soon. Can I just quickly, before we end, it's been lovely chatting to you. It's been two hours. Almost. Yeah. It's been lovely chatting to you. It's been interesting. I've enjoyed it. Yeah. Good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I'm, looking for, I'm looking forward to round two. <laughs> Hell yeah. Oh God, you know what the funny thing is? There's still so many things I want to talk to you about. Yeah. yeah. Honestly, it's mental. I've got so many things I still want to yeah. talk to you about. But look, what would your top tips be if you're wanting to start running or you're already a runner, you know, what would be the big bangs for your bucks advice that you would want to give to people out there? Number one would be say to yourself, I get to do this, not that I have to do this. So perspective mm -hmm. is that your body is physically able to run. Be grateful that you can do that. <laughs> Because sometimes with running, it can be frustrating. You can feel days where you feel sluggish. Em learn to embrace those hard days because when it feels good, it's it's worth it. Yeah. So just perspective that you get to do it. That would be one thing I would say. Mm. And then the other thing I would suggest is that strength training, not only because it's going to potentially reduce risk of injury, but also just the benefits it has to, you can see, physical health, mental health, um, but it improve it will improve tissue capacity, tissue structures. Mm. Find good resources for strength training, mm. i.e., the Irish physio on Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> Damn right. So it's where you get your information is important, and 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 be consistent with your strength training. You know, know that your body can. Pro I was I was thinking about this. I think I dream it last night. <laughs> it was what what if someone asked me what have I learned most from my patients? It is that you are capable than more 
than you think you are. Mm. You're capable of doing more than you think you are. So when you're doing certain exercises and you think, oh, maybe this is a bit too heavy, yes, give yourself time, do it safely and effectively, but you are capable of lifting heavier and doing more than you perhaps think you can. The yeah. body is adaptable. Yeah. Number three would be make small changes over time. So a lot of injuries are not as a result of overuse, I would say underprepared. So when you see someone taking six weeks out because you know they're busy stressing, then they go back and they try and do what they were doing previously, you've got to give yourself time. Mm-hmm. So if you're looking at a curve and that curve is, you know, spiking, you know, up and down, just try and have that l- that that curve consistent mm. it allows your body to adapt and you will reduce your risk of getting injured mm. therefore you maintain the benefits of running by doing things gradually over time great can i ask you top three tips from a, a <laughs> foot and ankle consultant what running yeah oh wow um pretty much everything you've just said i would say run to enjoy it I know a lot of people get obsessed with times and pushing themselves, which is good. It's good to have a goal. Like you've just achieved the London Marathon. You ran that and an amazing time yeah. after surgery. That's an amazing achievement. I think um, for most people, just run for the sake of running and to enjoy it. Don't do nothing but run. Mix it up. Yeah. Do the strength training. Do some other sport as well. You know, have a varied diet of exercise. Yeah. Just as you should have a varied diet of food. You know, most people actually only eat between 12 to 18 different type of foods. It's a very limited Mm. food variety. And that's not good for the gut biome. You need a very, very varied source of food. We're omnivores. And um, we should eat seasonally, locally, organic. Um, and equally, exercise. You know, exercise to me is like four limbs of a chair. You need strength training. You need aerobic work. You need anaerobic work. And you need balance. Yeah. And if you just focus on one limb, well, that's not a very good chair. Yeah. So, you know, if you want to be a strong runner, a good runner, uh, and and enjoy your run, because nothing is more beautiful than a pain-free run. Yeah. You know, it's flying. You feel like a superhero. Do you not feel like a superhero? I, I do, yeah. You know what I mean? It's a really bizarre thing. To, I remember a patient of mine telling me when I wasn't a runner. I was like, what the hell are you talking about? <laughs> but yeah. I get it. I get it. The flow state, isn't it? Flow. Where you feel like you're Hercules. you got wings in your trainers, and you're just flying across the, the ground. You know? To do that, to be a st- to have that state, you need to be strong. You need to be thinking about all the other forms of exercise I've just talked about. So aerobic, anaerobic, yep. strength training. <clears throat> and if you don't know how to exercise, watch your videos on Instagram. <laughs> Maybe think about getting a strength and conditioning coach or a physiotherapist yep. like yourself who can put a program together so you know what you're doing. So that personal trainer that I use is a strength coach and a running coach. And what I've done is I've built a mental bank now in my head of something like 50 to 80 exercises. And what I do is every time I exercise, which is about four times a week, strength training, I take out five to eight. Yeah. And I'll do, you know, upper body, lower body and mix it up, you know, and it'll be TRX in the garden, medicine ball, kettlebells, farmer carries, Romanian deadlifts, you know, you name it. It'll be, it'll be something. And then on top of that, 
you know, it is to do something sociable, some other fin- form of sport. Um, and that's it, to be honest. I mean, uh, I could go on and on. Distance, duration, yep. do everything gradually, don't do anything suddenly. I mean, but it's difficult sometimes. So, for example, we're going to Cornwall next week, half term. And where my in-laws live is beautiful. It's on the North Cornwall coast. There's some really nice coastal runs. And guess what? We've got childcare. Yeah. So <laughs> right now my wife and I run once a week because I've dedicated a day off work where she's off, I'm off, and we spend quality time together. And one of the day- things we do is a run. Um, but now we're going to be in Cornwall and we've got grandparents. Yeah. We could pack in three runs in four days. Yeah. It's tempting on the coast. Are you kidding? It's beautiful, rugged, hilly. So we will go on three runs. Yep. But I think the key thing is if you're going to do that, increase the intensity, you know, of frequency of your runs, decrease your intensity. So we will yep. not be going fast. We will be talking. It will be conversation pace. So we're out there running for the sake of being out and running and enjoying each other's company and the beautiful scenery and being out in nature. It's not going to be some stupid arbitrary time or lap. And it's so that two days later we can do it again and not get a stress fracture. So I think that's my top tips to people. Love it. Love it. Anyway, um, before we end, tell me about your future plans and then tell me where people can find you. Okay, so future plans. I am part of a very uh, two uh, very exciting projects at the moment so just set up physio running camps nice uh, with Niels who is part of trust me I'm a physiotherapist (laughs) and (laughs) massive platform and he's based in Netherlands so we're taking physios uh, this is this is my passion we're taking physios that run out to the French Alps where I'm going to be delivering only physios just physios oh wow so we're taking we're staying in an amazing chalet Morzine this summer we're taking 20 physios from China, Canada, all over the world. We're staying in a chalet. I'll be teaching them a physio running course. So I'm teaching them on treating runners in different injuries. And then in the afternoon, we're going to run. Nice. Yeah. I hate you. <laughs> and you're going to have great food as well. Uh, we've got a chef cooking for us for the full what? week. Yeah. So it's all catered. And then next year, we're going to Aiton in Kenya. So we're spending 12 nights doing another course. If you ever need someone to come out and lecture <laughs> about fit injuries. I will absolutely have you. And have case presentations. Yep. And I would do a great present. Yep. You know where to go. Like 100%. <laughs> um, so that's all. I'm putting a lot of time and effort into that at the moment. And the other thing is I'm part of the Alpine Run Project, which was an initiative set up by a very good friend of mine, John McAvoy. And we're... He is a Nike-sponsored athlete. So Nike and JD have invested in taking inner-city kids into nature, into mountains, to trail run. So wow. we're taking 15 kids. We've already They've already been chosen from charities, different backgrounds. And we've been to the Peak Districts doing training camp. And we're mentoring them. Tr- every week we're on calls and just trying to give them opportunities. So we're taking them to the UTMB, which is the most famous ultra trail race in the world in Mont Blanc. So we're taking wow. 14 kids out to Chamonix end of August. So that's another, I'm, I'm there as a physio. Chamonix beautiful. Yeah, I've never been. So I'm there as a physio to help them. And, and this is a, an ongoing project where we're looking to, you know, John and his team are looking to help as many kids as we possibly can. That's amazing. Yeah. 
And then I've got my physio practice, of course. Okay, where can people find you? People can find me on The Irish Physio or at The Irish Physio on Instagram. And YouTube is The Irish Physio TV. Fantastic. Thank Listen, you very much. Aidan, it's been lovely chatting to you. I didn't think it was going to take so long and we t- covered a lot of topics. And um, thank you for sharing so much. I really enjoyed it. Hope everyone else enjoyed it too. You know, thanks everyone for listening. And yeah, thanks for having me on. Pleasure. And I'm definitely going to be calling you back, by the way. <laughs> Pleasure. Okay.